Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. Ladies and gentlemen, this is QLS Classic. My name is Questlove, and we go back in the archives to September 2016. Some months after Prince's death, the members of his legendary band, The Revolution, gathered together and give us a... Reflective moments of his life and his career. We hope you enjoy. Here we go. One. Suprema. 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 Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. My name is Questo. Yeah. Shut up already. Damn. This is a special Purple News Report. Dearly beloved, check this out. This is Questlove, and you're tuned to a very special episode of Questlove Supreme, only on Pandora. Right now, I think it's about time that me and the whole Team Supreme take a road trip up to Uptown, up to Miniwood, up to Minneapolis the home of the legendary Prince Rogers Nelson. That's right. We're going on a road trip. All of us. All of Team Supreme. Von Tigolo, Sugar Steve, Unpaid Bill, Boss Bill, and now a recent addition, Lie. This very special Minneapolis episode of Questlove Supreme, we're going to talk to one of the hardest working bands of all time. That's right. I say they're the hardest working band. No band has prepped more, rehearsed more, and perfected more than the Revolution. Prince's band, that's right. We got, I know you're like, the Revolution? Exactly. We got them all. We got Bobby C. We got Brown Martin, Dr. Fink, Wendy Elisa. We also got Des Dickerson. And we got Andre Simone. And we got Susanna Melvin. The subject of many a Prince song. So without further ado, we're going to be right back with Bobby Z, Brown Martin, Dr. Fink. What's Love Supreme? Only on Pandora. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, um, I'll probably say probably one of the most influential group members of, of, I don't know, I mean, behind the creativity and the work ethic, 
I know no other band that's ever worked harder than The Revolution. We'd like to welcome Bobby Z, uh, Dr. Fink, and Brown Mark to Questlove Supreme. Thank you. In the house. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing good. Good. How are you? Very good. You're good. Good. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I have to, you know, there's so there's so many questions to ask, but I I really would like to start with the, the with the beginning, the very beginning of of how the group came together. But even before then, like, what were your backgrounds like? Are all of you from Minnesota or? I was raised here, born in uh, Bronx, New York. Brown Marks from the Bronx. Yeah, yeah. Boogie <laughs> down. <laughs> yeah, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. When did you move here? How old were you? Again? I was about seven. Seven. So, okay. Uh, it's been a long time. So what, what brought you here? My mother, she just wanted to, uh, my, my dad was military, and uh, he's based out of, he, he's from here, so um, this is where all his family was. So when they got married and then we came along, she just wanted us to be closer to his family because he was always overseas. Okay. And so that's how we ended up here. Fink, what about you? What's your, your early, be- you know, your... Well, I was born here. Okay. And... Uh, Bobby and I were both born in the suburb of St. Louis Park, which was one of the, the, you know, what were called the inner ring suburbs, like 10 minutes from downtown, so you could just, you know, shoot downtown to Minneapolis really quick and easy. And uh, so we started with music pretty early. I mean, my parents had me studying piano at a very early age, you know, right around six, and uh, studied classical really throughout through high school and jazz. Jazz came in about the age of 14 when I demanded to be uh, hooked up with a jazz teacher here in town. You so demanded? I, yes, I did. I told my parents, I said, I, I really want to <laughs> study <laughs> jazz. So um, they, they, uh, we found these really great teachers here that, that had studios downtown here in Minneapolis. And uh, uh, they were called Wiggly and Associates. There was just two guys, and Tom Weekland uh, was my teacher. I credit him with, a, you know, teaching me improv and improvisational techniques and all that. And um, well, that's just unusual because most people I would think would like, oh, like see something influential, rock and roll on television, and be like, that's what I want. But oh, I, well, want that was there too. Okay. I mean, definitely throughout all that. I mean, the, I was six when the Beatles came on Ed Sullivan. I watched it live, and then I was off and running from that too. That was. Uh, Huge influence on me that that time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Sir Bobby, both of you and your brother. Uh, yeah, that uh, I was just gonna say. Well, Matt mentioned St. Louis Park, which has, you know, produced a lot of great people, Al Franken and, uh, you know, Cohen brothers, Dan Wilson, yeah. Cohen yeah. brothers. You know, it's just kind of a strange um, you know, outer ring suburb that really did produce a lot of fun. But yeah, my brother David was kind of the godfather of this whole thing because, uh, like Matt said. Our families knew each other, but David was um, before the Beatles with Peter, Paul, and Mary, the Kingston Trio, you know, the hippie folk thing that was just moving with the anti-war movement grew, you know, the uh, folk music. Of course, Bob Dylan came from here, and, uh, and but David was also, they created their own bands, the whole Soma scene here with... Uh, Soma Records was Amos spelled backwards and Amos Heilicher on Musicland. So they had a label uh, with the, the Chancellors and uh, the High Spirits and and uh, the Trash Men with Surf and Bird and you know there was the the Castaways really? with Liar Liar. I mean it was exploding here 
in the in the late 60s and those guys eventually laid the kind of the fertile ground for the musical messiah to come and uh, you know Owen Husney of course was part of that group and it, it uh, but Matt and I had known each other because our families, uh, our mothers worked together, very creative people. Matt's dad was very creative and actors and radio and skits and my mother was very creative. And so Matt actually would come to the house uh, when we were very young yeah. and uh, my brother David was already showing us how to poke holes in the player piano to make more notes. And so, <laughs> wow, really? Yeah. So David's older. Yeah. David's eight years older. See, in my head, I always thought he was like I your little was brother because he was so funny. Yeah. <laughs> wow. yeah. I didn't know that he was the older brother. Yeah, okay. older than Steve's in the middle of four. But when David met Prince, you know, Prince had worked with a with a eight track, and then David was working at Sound Eighty and with the, the first digital actual, uh, uh, I think multi track digital was three M, and they gave it to Sound Eighty. One of them, anyway. So all all of that was the main, that was the centerpiece of, of Minneapolis yeah, Studios. At that like, time. Yeah, it was uh, Herb Pilhoffer, big jingle writer, big orchestrator, and uh, he built this incredibly beautiful facility for its time. Um, you know, 48 track, two inches, and, you know, incredible um, drum booths and stuff. You know, it was really, it was something. and. Um, Prince took to that like a fish to water, you know. And Peppy Willie, we recorded there at Studio B2 okay. with the Polydor deal with uh, 1015 and uh, and those tracks that Prince played on. Did any of you guys have any like lofty goals of, of like world domination or was it just like, hey, we'll just start a band, maybe I'll go to college or the army and... Yeah, no, I definitely like, wanted to... You wanted to break out of... Oh, yeah. No question. Did you feel there was a, a legitimate scene to, to nurture in Minnesota, or was it like, I gotta get to New York, or? It was more about getting to New York or LA and, and doing it, but we, I always thought you could still do it anywhere in the country, because you know, a lot of groups broke out from different cities, but uh, we, we were uh, really, at that time, one of the few groups that was able to do it at that time, just because Prince got his deal with Warner Brothers, you know. For me, I was on the, I was like right on the cusp of that generation gap. Mm -hmm. They were in a di different generation than me. Okay. And you saying we're old? No. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, it was weird because the generation of musicians that I hung out with, it was there, there, there was this distinct border of the type of music that we um, we approached. Um, but I just remember when I was about 17, 16, 17, I was determined. There was nothing going to stop me. Um, I was in the studio by the time I was 16 years old recording, trying to start my own thing, even though I couldn't even sing. I, I didn't care. I was going to do whatever it took because I saw Prince did it, went in there, did all the instruments, and I was like, well, wait a minute. You know, this can be done. And so I was determined. So how, how did Prince enter your... Who was the first to enter the radar? Bobby. Bobby, okay. Uh, I was... Um a runner for Husney, he had an ad, ad agency. I had just done it one summer from my junior year and then in a senior year I graduated high school and was, uh, I inherited the job from Jeff Siegel who went on to do the Renaissance Festival here. And okay. Just an amazing talent and uh, he had created this yellow 
<clears throat> excuse me, yellow paper delivery service, which just was kind of a invoice that you turn in on a yellow piece of paper on Friday. So it was you handed in a Husney. It was like fifty dollars a week or something to drive around. Mm -hmm. And then I was in this uh, this band, Kevin Odegaard and the KO band. It was kind of a country rock band, following Marshall Tucker and all that stuff back then. And um, you know, my job became kind of mixed because at the studio I I was walking from back room, which well, the studio I refer to is Moon Sound. So Chris Moon owned that. Chris studio. Moon owned the studio. Okay. I had a photography studio, and I think he used it to get girls mostly. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a photographer, English accent. But he he was a very charming guy, and um, so I was with this band that we were helping build in the back room for free rehearsal. We were kind of painting it or doing whatever, wrecking it, whatever we were doing. And uh, this one fateful day, I was just walking from the back hall from Studio B to the front door, and I heard this sound coming out of the door, wide, wide open Studio A, and just looked in there, saw the fro first, and, uh, and just heard this sound, and he was, he was working on Baby, and he stopped. I got the half turn. Startled. <laughs> the, the, just the eyes move, you know, more of a, a different electricity current than anything I've ever felt. I mean, we're all on the same current. Mm -hmm. He ran on a different electric current. So you could just kind of tell as the personality, even though he was shy, that there was just so much going on in there. And so I just sat down because it's like, you know, he was just a guy recording at that point. I just sat down and he just looked at me like, you know, with that horrified look that we found out later was, you know, who are you and what are you doing in my chair? You know, mm -hmm. get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I just sat there and I just kind of listened. And I just go ahead, play it. You know, it's like, that's amazing. You know, what, what's going on here? And he goes, nothing. You know, I said, yeah, yeah, sure. And then Chris Moon walked in, what are you doing in here? It's, you know, this is Prince and everything. I said, oh, okay. I didn't know this was like a nuclear, you know. <laughs> I didn't need a special, you know, suit to get in here. and. Uh, and so that the, the laughter, uh, the first laugh I got out of him was the connection. And humor is kind of how I got into it. And then I'd see him like every day until one day he went with the hand, you know, come here. And he goes, sit down. And I was just like, okay. And he goes, watch. Just I want you to make sure that I want you to hit record. And I said, okay. So I'm sitting in there and I hit record and he's out there in the drum booth and he's putting down a drum track. And I go, okay, wow, this is interesting. It's like, where is he going? What is he doing? Is this a drum track? Comes back in the booth, picks up the bass, he's putting on a bass track. And I'm going, that's pretty incredible. Picks up guitar, does the keyboards. And I'm sitting there pretty numb at this point, you know, watching all this go down. And then he goes, I want you to punch me in on vocals. And you know, it's like, all right, I'll just hit record, you know, and then he just record. He goes, stop, okay, go back to the next track, and we did the next track. So I kind of like got in there a little bit there, and then. So he jet out my instructions to engineering? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, it's like you didn't realize all, all the things were 
So then I became, then the studio I met him, and then we were hired by Chris Moon for, for slideshows, because that's what the, back, the, the work was back then. There wasn't any needle drop, there wasn't any music, so you'd hire these musicians to come up with, you know, jams, basically, that had no publishing rights. So me and Prince, my brother David, and the bass player from this country rock band, Gary Lopak, were doing a thing. And that's the first time I saw him play an acoustic piano, like a regular upright piano, and it was just like, that was it. When you saw the piano, and the piano was moving, and it was like a, a Max Fleischer, Betty Boop cartoon that, with Cab Calloway, the thing was just kind of, you know, those extra notes he kind of puts in those chords. Yeah. And it was just kind of like, I've never heard anything like that before. And how old was he at this point? About? He was um, 17. Wow. So slideshows, like... These events would happen. And well, you know, when corporate shows get together now, they put together slick video and all stuff about the. Company. Oh, someone just tells me and put a playlist together. So yeah. <laughs> back then, y'all were the playlist. <laughs> we were the playlist. Right. Yeah. So, but it was uh, it, that was the beginning of, of of the friendship, and then Andre entered the mix, and then the three of us were the three Musketeers for a while because they got obviously some stuff happening with Morris. I I came new to it because the history from the whole. Right. Community in the north side, but the flight time and Alexander O'Neill and everything and Andre and I was just kind of like, they, you know, I Prince wanted a, a, you know, a rock drummer and he 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 said I want you to spin sticks on fire, and I said I can't I'm not gonna spin <laughs> sticks. On fire. He goes I'll show you. So he took what? Me, he took me to Mother's Finest and the guy was spinning wow. sticks on fire. Wow, that's you know, right. I'm, okay, you know, or I was sparkling or whatever they yeah. were doing and. Um, and then we walked away from him. He goes, what did you think? And I said, you know, it's a crazy rock band. It's just, you know, because he had these beautiful melodies, too. And then he had these big rock jams like Bambi. It was kind of like, what the, you know, are you Mother's Finest or are you Joni Mitchell or what? And then we saw Fleetwood Mac together. And that was, that was achieved later with Wendy and Lisa. So the, the goals were there for the long term. It's kind of a combination of Mother's Finest, the Rolling Stones, and Fleetwood Mac. But did, did he let you know that he wanted this utopian poster group of a white drummer and a white keyboard player and a black well, bass player? In, not in the beginning. When Matt can talk, I mean, we were looking for identities and costumes, and we were out with Rick, and you know it was it was you know pretty chaotic as far as getting to the revolution, as far as the whole concept. But it's also the look like between Meet the Beatles and Abbey Road. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into that, the success breeds more creativity, but th there was an identity search, you know, by him in the beginning, you know, the early costumes, you know, were, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, were, were not formed, and then, of course, the faint, the bikini briefs and the... Okay, so I, I kind of want to skip to the point where you guys are now professionally hired. Um, I'll say that the the one thing that I witnessed that I now know is key and important um, is the only because you know I'm, I'm like one of those collectors that really gets off on the process of how it gets done not the final product but I know that you guys have put in endless hours of preparation before you even hit a stage just the amount of times that like when you hear the word body heat be flat, like does it like <laughs> send you to hysterics? Like <laughs> because he'll just yell it <laughs> at the most inopportune time, and you guys are like yeah. instantly there. I mean, 
I'm, I don't want to go to the point where you guys are already a perfected machine, like around 83, 84, but just in the beginning, at what point did you realize that, oh, God, he really wants to do this a 20th take or till four in the morning or, you know, oh, so all of Soundcheck is going to go well, right I'll, before I'll the let, show. I'll let them answer Mark and Matt get to that, but I'll just tell you, I was already on that clock. You know, because I had started so early that I already knew that it was, you know, we were jamming till dawn. It was already like that from day one. So even in the beginning, <laughs> oh, like before yeah. you guys... Dawn. It was we just, would move <laughs> Owen's yeah. furniture out, jam, put the furniture back, and they would open at 8, 9 a.m., and we would be done at 6. Wow. All me. night. Not, yeah. not that I think he would know about the, the 10,000-hour perfection rule, but do you just think that... For him, playing was playing much was better than socializing or just... Life. Was his, playing was, was his life. life. Yeah. yeah. When I came in, I was so stunned because, I mean, I, I had a pretty busy schedule. I, you know, I was in high school, got out at 3.30, had a job from 4 to 9.30 uh, at the Pancake House. That's where I met him. <laughs> I actually cooked him pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> Stop everything. Stop everything. That's it. That's it. That's how you really met friends. That's how I met friends. He was the cook. He was. I was the cook. I was a young guy. That's it. That's the show. Thank you very much. You got your sound bite. You know, from nine, I got off at nine thirty. I headed over to the North Minneapolis to the community center. I rehearsed till one. So from about ten to one, that's what I was used to. When I got in the band, we'd start at 10 a.m. We'd be on a jam, one groove, till, correct me if I'm wrong, 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Trust me, I know. I would have to go get a sandwich, <laughs> playing my bass. I'd be in the kitchen area, opening up, making the sandwich one-handed, and playing with one hand because the groove couldn't stop. If you stop the groove, he's going to be looking at you. Really? Yeah, so, so no lunch breaks or anything like that? Man, he was go. a driver, man. That dude was a yeah. driver. When y'all would jam like that, would he use those as like basis for songs? Like would songs be born kind of in the moment? That vault that? is probably packed. Yeah. We jammed all the time. Susan yeah. Rogers would just, he'd be like, roll the tape, Susan. Yeah. You know, and he would just listen to it all night long and just pull stuff out of it. Dirty yeah. Mind came out of stuff like that yeah. with Matt just jamming on something and come on to the house, you know, just, yeah. you, know, you could tell that story. That's so, that's so weird because now, I'll say in the early days of the roots, like we would jam that relentless, but then once I discovered, like, oh, I could just loop this. Because <laughs> yeah. Tariq would, like, write in real time, like, as we were jamming, like, four hours later, I'm like, all right, dude, we didn't play the same loop. Like, <laughs> just wasted on the young. Just, listen, let's loop it. And then, like, Tariq will use that as a basis, but yeah, to do that in real time is. is the word loop was, you know, was, was a Lynn pattern and there was no, you know, everything was pioneered. The, the drum machine arrived. Uh, I walked into a rehearsal in Eden Prairie. And, um, but I heard Private Joy when he recorded it. That was, I think, one of the first LM1 mm -hmm. tracks. And 
And he, he looked at me, he looked at the machine, looked at me, didn't say anything, he was looking at the machine, you know, just give me that smile, it's kind of like, you Same know. Jedi mind trick. Yeah, and, and so, Hit record. I walked into rehearsal and the thing was blasting away and I went right up to Steve Farnoli and I felt like a, a, a union auto worker or something. It'd be all drummers everywhere in the history of all drummers, this thing is evil. You know, you must remove the machine. And, and he gave me the best advice I ever got. He looks at me and goes, it's here, learn how to use it. That's funny. That's what we did. And then we had created Don Bats, who's working on our, our crew and our recent shows. Uh, you know, he created an interface with uh, guitar pickups that we're using for acoustic guitar, interfaced with this spaghetti thing that they created to interface with the outs of the Lynn to trigger pads. Nobody even had that. Yeah, I was about uh, to say, you did you guys invent? Or at least create with them. No, we're triggering. Like, did you guys? Don Batts was a genius. Don Batts was yeah. a genius. Yeah. And he yeah. invented, you know, Prince said, you know, I want him to play pads. And John, Don was like, I have an idea, but, you know, it, it was a jalopy at best. I mean, it would just kind of run and then work. And then, you know, when we did the American Music Awards, the fact that it didn't double trigger was, was you know, because a double trigger, it was your fault. It's not, you know, it was always your fault. It was a machine. I was going to ask you, all right. I, Maybe I've used it three times in my life, and we started using in-ears because the vibration of the monitors on stage and the bass would offset the drum set. Right. And, I mean, of the hundreds of hours I've watched, I mean, I've watched concerts just to see how you react to stuff to the cues and all that stuff. Has there ever been a, a faux pas like, oh, I don't have a job tomorrow, like... <laughs> oh, like... 25 times. Sure. I mean, has water ever spilled on there? Has the machine just cut off? Oh, that, that, or first of all, Baby I'm a Star turned into Simon Says. So he's hiding his stop on the one cues. Mark had to relay them to me. Because he would so, go. Oh, was, <laughs> what? He would go. He would just lose himself or do it on purpose. I never really knew. You know, it was like, is he just. Well, messing with us, or he would just go way over, way to the in fans the corner, over there, right. and then he'd look at Mark and go, stop on the one, he knows full, full well I can't see him. Well, the so biggest your problem, job yeah, 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 he yeah, would yeah. go, you know, yeah. Yeah, but go the, besides that, though, the biggest problem was he, he would hold his hands up, fingers up in the air to give us how many horn punches, and then it would, if, you, if you saw it sideways, like that, <laughs> you're like, you, you couldn't see how many... And then, you know, he could tell if you weren't playing, if you were like, well, I'm laying yeah, out because I didn't see how many, num you know, fingers were up, you know. There's one show where uh, Bill and I just discovered, uh, what was it, uh, in New England somewhere. Uh, Boss, oh, the Worcester Mass, Mass Show? Yeah, we yells for hundred and twelve. Oh, that's a, that's Atlanta. The, there's one. Uh, oh, oh the, but there's one in Boston where uh, I think you, Bobby. I think you actually played a little bit. You yeah, he did five you, extra. So, well, yeah, it was to the point. Hundred dollars. What did he say? Was that forty-five? No, the show was so loose. It was during possessed. The show was so loose that he actually said. Okay, I'm gonna get you, yeah. and I'm gonna get you, yeah. and I know I'm gonna get you, and I'm gonna get. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> who challenges his band to mess up yeah. at an actual show? Yeah, like, yeah. Well, I, I, one, I, I'll say one more technical glitch that used to take place for me. Uh, we, we were using the first what are called MIDI musical instrument digital interface switchers for the keyboard, you know, racks. We'd have like racks of sounds, and if you were 
making a program change in the middle of your song, and there would be sometimes several, if you were holding down notes or a sustain pedal and you made a program change, the whole thing would just lock up and, the, and whatever chord you were playing would keep playing and you couldn't shut it off. So if you'd be sitting there in the middle of a song and just be, ah, you know, doing this, and then we'd have to hit the panic button or the, our keyboard tech would have to run over and hit the panic and make it shut off, but then you had like nothing. And it was a big, it was a nightmare. So you had to time your, stu- your switches really, you know, really quickly. You just write split second stuff because it didn't, the technology hadn't caught up quite yet with. You were that technology. Yeah. So then, so one one day I get called in the dressing room after the show after one of those uh, problems happened, and Prince goes, "What what happened (laughs) during that song?" And I go, "Well, there's a technical issue, and nothing I can do about it." And he goes, "All I could say was I can't have that in my show," and that was it. And I'm saying, "Well, I don't know what else to say. We got this technical limitation. I'll do my best." And then you just have to work with it, you know. One thing. What song was it? Oh, it happened on any song. It could happen on any song. It didn't matter. That's what I liked about him, though. Yeah, but he was okay. You know? There was a work ethic that he put work in ethic, place yeah. that you, we're not, we, we would never get anywhere else. He, put, he, he trained us. We were, like, battle-ready at any time. That's why we could leave for 25 years, not see each other. When we came back together and we hit the room, it was, we all just looked at each other and started laughing because the energy, the power, everything was still there. And there was this sound that is so distinct. I played with many bands since I left this band, mm-hmm. but nothing, there's nothing like it. I don't know why, but there's a chemistry that we have that he d- developed with us. It, it just, it's there, it's prevalent. Was he always the first to arrive? No. Was he? <laughs> <laughs> I just the light. This is great. This is going to be us in 30 years. I can feel it. I can feel it. No, we waited many. I mean, first of all, going back to the again, you know. I See, mean, I thought he was the first to arrive and the last to leave. Like, well, Wendy's story, you know, when she told our recent shows about the, the freezing cold purple rain and his advice to, you know, start your car and let it run for three hours. When we did the Capri Theater, you know, it was just, I drove him over and, you know, a rusted out Pinto station wagon, you know. He, he, he just said, I want to put gas in your car, I want to run all day. Because he didn't want it to get cold, he just wanted to make sure that it was warm. It was 20 below zero. It was 20 below zero. So it was really, <laughs> I hear these over-exaggerated, like, 100 below zero. Oh, it gets warm. It can, it gets, cold. you know, Siberia and Minneapolis are just kind of connected. <laughs> really? <laughs> if you look at the globe on the top, but yeah, I mean, it gets, it gets, it's just, that gets purple here on the weather map. <laughs> but, it, it, you know, I just want to go back to the show. On top of all that stuff, there was audibles. Four or five, maybe six audibles. That, that Huge, I have yeah. a tape called uh, um, Ice Cream, which is a 59-minute jam, which is just working on the 16 bars of ice cream. We got it. All right, <laughs> so well. let me explain, though. <laughs> when, he's, when he gets to confusion at the end of the 59 minutes... That means we had just done that for confusion a right. month or a week earlier where we spent 100 hours figuring out these audibles. The audibles were extra hard to see. They were a sleight of hand to the hair. They were a stomp on the foot. 
They were, you know, a, 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 a stripper butt move. They were just all kinds of things that you had to watch. Remember the napkin drop? The napkin drop. To yeah. the you had to hit when it hit. Bam! And hit the uh, it still keep the pace, but keep make sure the they hit. hit. You had the song. And you there was were. fans blowing everywhere, so the thing would kind of like be on a journey on the way down. And he'd watch you. He had Alan Lee's on the side of the stage. Just waiting. <laughs> Yeah. Mark, I $200. $200. And, you know, he'd go, Bobby Z, $200. And the fans would go, ah. It's like, I just got fired. <laughs> Those fines were real? Oh, they were real. It all depends what kind of, yeah, they were real. But it all depends what kind of mistake if he remembered. There was two kinds of mistakes, whether he was in the spotlight or not in the spotlight. If he was in, not in the spotlight changing over here and he heard it, you could sometimes hear him laugh at you. <laughs> but if he was in the spotlight and you missed something, it was usually a $200 fine. Wow. Heavy. Yikes! I remember I lost $1,200. I just couldn't figure stuff out. Yeah, you know? brain freeze. We'd hit a new song, yeah, you get a brain yeah, a new freeze. song every day, set changes every day on top of everything else yeah, as yeah, he yeah. was bored to death. So here's a question for you guys. You mentioned a new song. So how long would he give you guys to learn a new song? Sound check. Yeah, just sound check. Sound check. Yeah. That's why I developed the rumble, ten, the rumble technique on the bass because I got tired of getting fine, so I started going, you know, in the beat with the drummer. Right. And I started doing being. It's like you were playing for no melody. Buying you time. <laughs> you know Yo, that's so weird because I'm thinking like. He loves that's some innovative ass shit. Just trying to get through like a like yeah. a, a play, a like broken play. And he know? loved it. He loved it. I mean, when he hear that on the bass, yeah, that's he his, was like, that's he'd turn his around shit. and he'd be like, oh, okay, Mark, just rumble, just rumble, do the rumble thing. And then we start a whole new song like that. You know, most of the stuff I play, if you listen on stage, ain't no notes. I know. That's the thing. Like. <laughs> Spins and foot backflips. <laughs> oh my god, I can't believe it. Like, I'm thinking, like, this is, the, this is some new technique. Because I tell my player, Mark, to do the same thing. Like, yo, listen to this. This is what you need to do. You're stalling. So, uh, uh, Fink, yeah. while I have you, so you're saying that at no point were you, I mean, this is in the early 80s, of course, the te technology was not invented for uh, perfection yet it was not they were glitchy you know things could be glitchy but go ahead so <laughs> every night that that when doves cry solo had to be spot on and 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 just how like the doctor well the doctor like i said like when you heard it you just thought like oh okay at least like how would you at least decide he would decide for you, or uh, not always. But I no. When I first heard that solo, I was scared out of my. It was sped up, wasn't it? Well, it, it, there was a studio technique he used to create. Yeah, that. it was. Well, that, that wasn't. It was too. Per, it was too. Right. Yeah. Quantized. No, not exactly. He never down. sequenced. He never he played sequenced. it slower. And sped up. He, he actually, ah, yeah. he, he uh, very speeded. He, yes, he yeah. very speeded the uh, tape, but octave lower. I'm not supposed to tell that secret. But then expect him to be killing me right now. Sorry, <laughs> very speeded. A secret sauce. <laughs> secret sauce. No, I, I, I've told this story before. I have. But, but, but he played. But he could play that if he really wanted to. He's capable. 
Well, he, he was. Yeah. He could. I mean, in, in real time, he could have. But, but, but in the studio, he used it to write it so he could really perfect it and write it just the way he wanted it and then sped it back up again. So then I had to, of course, cop that solo and play it live, yeah. Yeah, then so, of course it's just his problem. Like Darling Nikki, yeah, it was yeah. like all trick yeah. photography, you, you know. It's, it's like one day at rehearsal goes, okay, Darling Nikki, three, four, and I'm just sitting there going, how are we going to do that, you know, on the record? So it was like I had a double kick drum the next day, and it's like, well, that's gonna, not going to work. So I figured out. He said, all right, well, you got a night to figure it out. It's on you. And I'm like, how am I going to recreate Darling Nikki live? So when he just calls those songs at random, all the stuff is pre-programmed in, in your limb drum. Depends on the song. Some are live so, drums, some are played. Some if he are... says beautiful ones, you know automatically, that's nine. Program nine or yeah. like... Right, but the, you're jumping way ahead. What, when we were rehearsing for the Purple Rain tour, the record is like this, this you know, creative, overlayered, amazing yeah. thing. But to do it live, all these parts like he's talking about, like Matt was saying, there's tricks to everything he did. I mean, he meticulously... You know, whether it was us playing or him playing would kind of, you know, get it, you know, he was set up in Sunset Sound. He was just a wizard there. And he was just completely, you know, just... just Did you have those flange effects on your, on your Lindrum? And yeah, we ran them through pedals. We ran them through, you know, just yeah. boss delays and yeah. stuff. And, you know, just getting... That's where all the loops, there, there wasn't anything like that. So Mountains is just... The Lin through all these boss delays into the, you know, so everything was, was new. But, you know, he, the, the, the technology was, was, as we discussed earlier, was being developed in technique. So, like Darling Nikki is that, that double kick drum where he's just against his, the other track, he's just going with his fingers. He could play with his fingers on that thing. I mean, he could just go, I mean, yeah. Buttons and he sure. was just perfect every but time. But how are you supposed to? Right, so then the rehearsal just goes, okay, let's do Darling Nikki. And it's just like, okay. Okay, <laughs> so, you know, then I'm going to be fired if I don't show up the next day. I took the box home, and me and the box had that come to Jesus moment. <laughs> we really just kind of really got, I just said, well, I'll just do this program going with a visual light. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. And then get to the program, da da da. Right? Mm-hmm. Da, da, da. So during da, 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 I had to switch patterns. I had the one next to da, 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 da. And then I just go do, 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 do right against it. And then he looks at me. So then I did, I did it like he did it, which was the big kick drum, softer pad. Right. So I had a technique. And then he, he came back to me and goes, nice job. Let me fix something. And then he puts them both on the loud kick. So when people hear it, it's... And the whole place was like a kick drum there. People's heads were blown off. Because, yeah, that's what I want. Just like, you know, just all these uh, weird things. Well, you know, and I would die for you. Uh, getting back to Don Batts, he added MIDI to the Lin so that we could connect it to my synthesizer and have the bass part play sequenced through the whole thing. I was going to ask how, who handled... Right. You know, that whole thing. But it was, in the studio, Prince actually played that manually through the whole song. It was not sequenced. It was him on the Oberheim playing... Like he's talking about on the drum machine doing that. He did it in the studio and created that tight through the entire song. Perfect. There was many times you just felt like 
that's a musician and you're not. <laughs> Many times. Okay, so yeah. I, I, I kind of have to know, and I know everyone has like these purple wing questions, but surely life had to have been, there, there must have been a, a, a sea change leading up to Purple Rain and then life after Purple Rain. I well, mean, being thrown off did the you stage guys, with the Rolling Stones to Purple Rain, yeah, that was a big thing. <laughs> okay, well, actually, oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, yeah, what was, could you describe the, the, the Rolling Stone LA incident? Well, I, I want Mark to speak to that because that was his <laughs> that first gig. Yeah. <laughs> what? First time on stage. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. wow. That was pretty interesting because um, I was scared to death. I'm sitting, but I knew the Rolling Stones. See, you know, I knew that was rock and roll, bikers, Hell's Angels, you know. And I was like, how is this going to work? We singing head, right? Jerky, jack, jack you, you off. off. I'm like, this is going to be interesting. I said, I think we're going to be dead after this. <laughs> <laughs> you were right. No. Yeah, man. I'm telling you, we hit that stage and it just looked like cattle. Have you guys heard the tape? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It sounds good, but there's yeah. a guy, there's one tape I heard with a guy. Person is talking. Yeah. Man, look at that. Whoa, they just threw something. Whoa. Yeah. They're he's not going to last or something. But but that started with a, an orange that hit his base like grapefruit. head. Yeah. Grapefruit. Ooh, grapefruit. Yeah. I mean, it just, Who brings I want, a grapefruit yeah, to the show? Yeah. <laughs> it got stuck on the keys, the tuning keys. It just, Ooh, boom. Wow. So I was so out of tune, I didn't even know how to tune the thing. You know, and so we're playing. What what song was that? Uh, uh, Uptown or something? No, it was. Uh, uh, we well, came out the gate with Bambi. Yeah, it was. Oh. Why you want to treat me so bad? I think, and I was yeah, way, way out of tune. So Bass was out of tune, and I, I saw Jack Daniels bottle come yeah. up on the stage. Yeah, crash. Or his head. He did. He just ducked his head, and an empty Jack Daniels bottle just went like right crash against the drum riser. And then I looked at Lisa, and then when I was looking at Lisa. Things started coming like you yeah. know, projectile yeah. incoming. I got hit with a bag of chicken. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I mean, it's like funny. Yeah, chicken, wait, the chicken had to be the second night, right? Like yeah, they didn't know what was coming. Well, the, the second night they brought stuff to throw. Yeah, but the, the the first night it was like, are they? Do they hate us that much that they, you know, they're just throwing their lunch at us? I mean, they, they, you know, they're, they're, it's like, where were these objects coming from? It was just. It was seemed, like, you know, you can bring lunch to Rolling Stone. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's what I mean. It's like, how, you know, what? It, it's like it was just a. But Mark, like Mark said. So it was like bikers and, you know, it, you know it's the Stones, but they were there. The doors were at 6 in the morning at the, at the, at the Rose Bowl. Mm-hmm. And, no, it was uh, a Coliseum. 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 And so they were there all day, and then we went on at 2 in the afternoon. So it was like an all-day Rolling Stones festival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You and Jay Giles being, right? Jay Giles yeah. and George Thurgood. George Thurgood. Yeah. So, uh, you guys were first? Yes. We were meat. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, we were just raw meat. For so the, then, <laughs> so you saying the stadium was full by then? Because yeah, no, well, it wasn't totally in my position, full. like it's always empty. Close. Like when we do like Dave Matthews shows, oh, like, there are twelve people in the audience. There were a lot of people. There was there. at least you know half sixty thousand to sixty thousand. It was a ninety thousand seat venue. Yeah. You know? I just remember it looked like cattle, and they had the uh, fire hoses, and they're spraying people down. Yeah, it was a crazy. And then there was a food fight. There was an actual food Amongst fight. themselves? Yeah. It yeah. looked like clouds. Uh, just clouds. Just yeah. So that was like the rap show of, of the day. <laughs> yeah, but you know one you thing. You never hear about this thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, one thing I just wanted to say is that, that it, later on uh, during the Stone set, they actually threw, uh, it must have been 
two dozen pair of shoes up on stage. Yeah, but out of love. When you think it was out of love? Yeah, because there was three. Yeah, yeah, rescue. Yeah, this yeah, was why? One was love, one was hate. <laughs> why were they throwing shoes, though? I mean, to get Mick to pick it up. You know, just it was, a, you know, this, they were aiming at our heads. I know they were they aiming. They were throwing <laughs> nicely to Mick, you know. Was, I just thought it was odd that they threw shoes, shoes up there to, uh, on stage at him. And, and he, of course, he just said, you know, I'm not a effing doormat back to the audience. Well, yeah, I mean, look. Wait, you stayed to watch the show? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Matt, I heard Prince, like, literally he got... Left. Oh, he left. I left, too. I was gone. That he got <laughs> on the plane and went to Minnesota, <laughs> yeah. and then Mick had to call him. Yeah. Mick and Dez had to call him, and... and, and, and they now, without, without the technology, like... It's not even like cell I think phone it's, action. I think it's like both on a phone technology back in the day where you're used to both kind of put the phone up and both listen to the phone. We didn't have that. And, and Mick, no you know, and was, was with, with Des and I know the management. And uh, But the story I remember most is that he had had enough and we couldn't end songs without his cues. So when he left, we, we left. And he went down, and he walked up the big red carpet. We're playing, playing, and he's walking back up the big red carpet where the Stones Village is. And I see Bill Graham, the the legendary promoter, like tear after him and say a few things. Hand expressions. Who knows what he said? You know, the classic, you'll never work in this town again, or whatever he said. And he just turned around, came back, ended the song, got on a plane, went to Minnesota. Mick said, do you want me to talk to the crowd? You know, because Charlie and Bill came back, and, and they were great. You know, they were apologetic. Pretty, apologetic, and, you know, the, you know, our fans are rowdy and stuff, and they were really apologetic. And Mick said to Prince, do you want me to say something to the crowd that I, I wanted you? You know, Mick was the reason why we did it. He loved Dirty Mind so much. Right. And Prince said to him, I don't need my mom to go up there and tell anybody anything. I'm, you know, so he... he he, he was indignant about it and wanted to But he well, came he back, and yeah, that dressing room before the second stop was the most tense, thick air I'll, I ever had with him in all the years. That moment before the second Rolling Stone show was just, we're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, well, I got I hit in the head. I remember in the you know, limo. The, you know, Prince almost got hit with glass Ooh. bottle, but anyway, go ahead. I just remember in the limo when we were leaving, because I got out of there too, and I remember he said, he was so embarrassed, I think, because that was my first show. Yeah, he was, he was bad, sad for Yeah, he said, he says, Mark, it ain't like this. And I said, well, I said, Prince, that's the Stones. You don't have to talk to me. I know mm-hmm. how rowdy they get. And he says, no, no, you don't understand. When we hit our first show, you're gonna see my audience. And he said, it's night and day from this. Yeah. And I didn't know what to think of that, you know, because I haven't seen anything. I, was, I come from the Chitlin circuit. So yeah. Was he the same after that, or was he, it like a, he, a, I, even more determination? I, I usually too? talk to him at least every third or fourth day. I didn't talk to him for about four weeks. And uh, he was just in the, in, the, in the Purple House, which became the Purple House later, but on Lake Riley, and he was down in the studio, and then he called me one day, and he said, I want you to put some, you know, the syndromes on uh, a song. And we, we put... Syndromes on 1999 and Little Red Corvette, and and I was excited that, you know, he, he was in good spirits and he was ready to, he, you know, then we just kind of went down south where it was safe and just 
and played and played and played. Wait. Against the Rolling Stones, it was. Yeah. 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 Well, well, we, now, black people are throwing food as you. You know about that. Well, we, started, we went back to find the love, you know? That is weird, though, because you would think, like, a show in L.A., like, to me, that's like the best thing in the world. Right, like, right. Yeah, we go to LA, man. Yeah. We did Pittsburgh. We did the Stanley Theater. Right. That was my first yeah. real French real French audience. And I'll never forget the love was different. It was like, yeah. oh man, this is this sweet. is what he meant. Not <laughs> not so yeah. solid, but we went to find the love. But you know, eventually Atlanta and you know, I mean Atlanta was another, you know, Fox Theater. You know, we we just he, we did it. He, whatever happened, he he figured out who his audience was, and it certainly became the Stones audience later. It just, you know, he learned from all that, but the, the physical, I mean, it, it was definitely, you know, this is like professional baseball football, you know, I mean, you know that, and you know, we're, we're at that standard. That was a, a loss, and there was many W's to come, but, you know, that was a big, you know, 41 to nothing beating. I almost think that maybe it's a good thing you guys went through that to, totally. I don't know, in my head it was like, okay, that's gonna make us stronger, more oh, determined. Yeah. And totally. That sort of thing, me. you have to go through that. I've never cried before, I mean, like that. I mean, it was terrible. I mean, it was just really <laughs> traumatic, to really? tell you the truth. Yeah, oh, yeah, it was Yeah, terrible. I was actually pretty shocked at, at what happened, because I didn't... Leading up to it, were you excited? Like, yeah, of course. Oh, 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 that was the dream. Are you kidding me? It was like a, an amazing. I mean, for Matt and I, I mean, you know, the Beatles, Stones, mm-hmm. and Sullivan, you know, the whole thing, and it was like this was, you know, meet Charlie Watts, and yeah. you know, everything was just hunky dory. But you know, well, so, so someone yeah. also put it to me that, um, and this this is like the, this person's theory on on being born in 1958, at least for Prince that. Even though Prince was technically uh, a baby boomer, yeah, that the audience of the baby boomer wasn't his audience. That technically he was the older brother of the Generation X. So all the kids and the younger siblings of the Rolling Stone audience would be Prince's right true well, audience. Yeah, and he wrote the Stevie Earth, Wind, and Fire ride was where he went. Earth, Wind, and Fire's audience, obviously with Cavallo Ruffalo, mm-hmm. they knew how to do that. And Earth, Wind, and Fire was, had done such incredible, you know, with Doug Henning magic and Crossover all this stuff. stuff. Earth, Wind, and Fire really changed everything. Right. And yeah. then, then you know, it was, it was just crossover smashes. And that opened up, you know, uh, us really in a way that we could uh, get going. But um, the way we did, but obviously, you know, the Midnight Special, and there was, some, you know, there was a lot of TV that didn't go right until Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. and that went right. And then all of a sudden, we were, you know, more focused after all that. So when things are heating up during the 1999 tour, I know that the time was uh, the openers for you guys. Um, was the folklore really as tense as, as it was as far as, like... To the point where it's like, okay, you guys cannot open for us in New York. Like, were they, was it really that much of a threat? Or, I mean, I can speak on this. I mean, I used to have conversations with dude every night. I'd be like, Prince, these cats are burning it up. I said, they are burning up the stage, dude. He's like, they don't got nothing on us. You watch, you watch. And this was every night. And I think he started seeing it. And it was like, was it really that much? Because, 
Uh, Even though I've seen tapes, I've not seen audience reaction to the time. I think that was an internal thing. I I don't, there's just no comparison. This is what I saw, okay? This is what I saw. Prince was starting to cross. Mm -hmm. Prince was starting to cross. The time was still in that that, that black audience. That's right. So that's Mm -hmm. what you saw. But I think that that was the whole goal. Like, okay, this is me as the black group, and this is me, you know. Exactly. I thought he wanted that. But he did, but the audience... You know, they come from the hood. They the time was like, oh, what yeah. the bird and everything, and, right. and, and so we were going more rock and roll. And so you know, they uh, certain songs like "Let's Work." You know, we would play certain songs because we had to. But he really wanted to do the uh, little red Corvettes in the nineteen ninety. He he was changing. So he there were points where the audience just wanted to like, okay, okay, they're doing. Let me sit down and it got tight. It, you could really see the shift. And that's when he uh, took them off the tour. And he had to. He had to. He had to? He had to, in my opinion. That's just my opinion. Because <laughs> my, my he took them off in a market that my, my relatives never got to see him, uh-huh. which was New York. And yeah. uh, they were heated because they thought, like, yeah, yeah. we never got to see the time in their prime, like, yeah. doing that. Yeah. Doing that doing that period. So it was really tense. But it, it, the, the, the tension um, at the end of the tour became really bad to the point where oh, it was um, real. the food fight ensued. So I was just weird. <laughs> What's up with food fight? The food fight. <laughs> the food fight is another show, but it, 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 it was insane. So I'm standing in the stairwell in New Orleans at the Stanley Theater in New Orleans, and um, all of a sudden Jerome looks at me with an orange in his hand and then just pelts me. <laughs> And I have a light-colored suit on, and I walk back in the dress- dressing room, and Prince looks at me and says, what happened to you? I said, Jerome just hit me with an orange. And he went, what? And, and it was like, I just thought nothing of it. And to him, that was like Pearl Harbor. <laughs> oh, no. First shot had been shot the first the shot had been oh, yeah, fired. Yeah. And, and it was like, he got so enraged that it just, it, all I can tell you is, is it turned into two days of complete chaos, hotel rooms trashed, uh, Jesse Johnson as a prisoner of war, <laughs> you know, being chained to the you wall. Tried to he was handcuffed. Yeah, yeah. Handcuffed. handcuffed. Handcuffed to a coat yeah. rack. Yeah. Yeah. Who had handcoffs? Okay, this well, is not, 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 not Chick. Chick had everything. Chick had everything. Brass knuckles, handcuffs, yeah. guns, yeah. whatever you want. You know? Oh, so Chick was actually part of this as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Chick was the, well, got Jesse Johnson, picked him physically up, carried him in the room, and handcuffed him to the coat rack. Because he was threatening Prince. You know, verbally threatening him, you know. Yeah, Jesse was so heated, I'm going to kill you. So Prince we had a, a room manager named Hewitt at that point. He sent him out to the store. He came back with maple syrup, and eggs, and toothpaste. And oh, Jesse no. Johnson's being interrogated. And, and they're pouring maple syrup over his head while he's chained up. And they're putting toothpaste on him. And the time is hearing that they've got a prisoner in there. And so Jesse, Jam, and Lewis show up at the end of our set with shields and hefty bag yeah. suits. They made suits out of hefty bags with shower caps, and they had eggs. And so we is were, anyone in the audience noticing this? No, they have no oh, idea. All this later, is on later, stage. later yeah. Yeah. Oh, on stage. Later, yeah, later. it was happening all through a sound check on stage. Oh, Jesse Johnson was captured on stage. On he was stage. bagged yeah. on stage and dragged off. off. I thought <laughs> Jerome was too. 
Oh, they pull him off and during the show, Jerome during yeah, their show, and then the rule was the time Jerome, couldn't they touch couldn't us. Get Jerome. They tried. Oh, really? Okay. They so the time Jesse. couldn't touch us, but Prince, I think Prince jumped up there as Jesse or something. Yeah, yeah, they captured right. Jesse, took him to the room, and Prince waited for him while they chained him up, and then. But the tr the end of the story is Jesse breaks free. Yeah. With the coat rack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a monster movie. He breaks free <laughs> with the coat rack. Swing the coat rack <laughs> off the wall. And then Prince, everybody scatters. We run outside. Jam and Lewis are waiting for us, pelting us with eggs. We run, Matt and I run into Roger's room. And he's like going, what the heck's going on, Fink and Z? We're like, this outside. And then we just kind of, he's like looking at us, come on into the party. So we hide out in Roger's room for a minute. We come back out. They're still waiting. You know, they've they got eggs, they got stuff. And then the end of it, Prince had sent Hewitt out to get pies. Wait, what supermarket is open at a late hour? A hotel or something, and then carts of pies showed carts up. Carts of cream pies came in like in a movie. Oh, wow. And we had a pie fight. We had a pie a fight, and to then Prince, but Prince wasn't prison. done. So then he goes, come on, let's go to the hotel. <laughs> and he gets the hotel to open up Jesse's room, and we're hiding. Lisa and I and Prince are in Jesse's room with yellow mustard. <laughs> Prince, what? Prince is yeah. with yellow mustard. I said, Prince, that's yellow mustard mustard this is gonna cost a fortune I don't care he's like putting yellow mustard all over the his clothes and all over everything oh, and then no. when we hear a noise outside and Lisa and I are in the closet hiding and it wasn't Jesse's then we got out of the room and he's putting yellow mustard on his door it's, it's a princess you gotta pay for this yeah it was like so, 12 to, uh, 15 20 thousand dollars in damage who got to pay for that? Led Zeppelin throws TVs out. This is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> the tour, the tour paid for it. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, was there a kumbaya moment at the end, or was that the, like the last Prince Time show ever? Well, Jam and Lewis were out. Yeah. So not really. Uh -huh. Yeah. Me and Prince ended up sitting in for them. You know, doing the Atlanta show backstage. Yeah. Because they they weren't they weren't there. So you guys were playing like backstage, backstage like behind yeah. the curtain, whatever. Yep, I hit jams. Uh, Terry's parts. Prince had uh, jams parts. Wow. It's it's a movie in itself. It's just really an amazing story, and uh, it was war. Really. Yep. 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 Well, <laughs> you know, I, I just want to thank you guys for. Uh, I mean, I can go on forever and ever and ever and ever, but I really, really just want to thank you guys for uh, everything that you've done. For music and for, you know, for for me personally. <laughs> but, um, ladies and gentlemen, you're you're very. I just want to say, thank you for being a disciple, and thank you for carrying our torch for us and in the yeah, love, yeah, everything you. you've so, done to right keep on. our name alive and be on our side. We love you for that. Obviously, John Warwick and Dr. King, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back with more Quest Love Supreme. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. 
In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. And we're broadcasting from Minneapolis, and we just wrapped up a great conversation with Mark, uh, Bobby Z, and Dr. Fink of the Revolution about a crazy food fight. I guess normally I, I would come with a real mushy, heartfelt, emotional intro, but um, based on what we just heard, I got to cut to the chase. Lisa, can you please give us your account of the food fight <laughs> in Cincinnati? Oh, <laughs> oh Lord. Um, sure. I mean, it's such a story. Oh, I mean, we know. it went <laughs> but on. But I want to know how were you, were you, was it just all women and children and Jesse taking well, hostage? Yeah, or? women, children, and Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> Please welcome the, the, the muses of all muses of all time. I don't know. Like, muses just feels like assistance. I feel like you guys are the, really oh, the boy. epicenter that he came to. So, no more muses. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Wendy Melbourne, Lisa Coleman. <laughs> Okay, so, I mean, there's so many questions that I know you're tired of answering and whatnot, but just for formality's sake. Um, actually, no, I, I, there's a lot of your background before you even came to, uh, I guess, under the purple umbrella that I would like to know about. Um, <laughs> both of you are, first of all, from L.A., correct? Yes. yes. 
Okay. So how did how did you two meet? Like you two were childhood best friends, correct? Yeah. Well, here's the the story is pretty interesting. We're Lisa and I are second generation LA musicians. Right. Our fathers were studio cats. That's what they're called, right? Mm-hmm. They're part of the Wrecking Crew. Right. Um, and in the '60s and the '70s, being a studio musician was really a really respectable career. You know, you got your pension based on how many sessions you did. So when my father and her father, you know, were in their 50s, only 50s, and all of those cats were losing their gigs to machines and to single-room producers, they started living off of pensions based on sessions, right? Which really don't do now. Our families grew up together. We went to the same schools together. We had the same doctors. We had the same hippie friends. And parents had the same drugs and the same... The whole thing, right? So there were three kids on Lisa's side, three kids on my side. And we grew up together. Growing up in that kind of environment, we were very well-versed with um, what it's like to be in the business what it's like to be musicians, what the separation between uh, entertainment and artistry, we, we, we knew the difference. So I think being hired by Prince, that I think that was an asset for him because we had a, a real, um, we had already had a big definition of that in our own personalities by the time at least I joined and Lisa joined. Um, and, yeah. you know, we had bands together with our f- fr- with our siblings uh, there was an unreleased record on A&M what's the name of the group it's it's a, based off of a really horrible food substance name it Waldorf oh. salad <laughs> it was the parents fault it's the parent we were we all went to a, a Waldorf school we all went to Highland Hall which was this Waldorf school it's a Steiner education it's real hippie like you, you get to crochet and do your rhythm me and make cut me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, but at the time you're you're making it like it was a lame thing. But at the time was it like fun? Like the name of the band is lame. <laughs> Waldorf Salad. Who named the band? I'd have to say my father. Rest in peace. That's <laughs> her. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay, so well, our, my Salad. Fa- my father and her father are also the ones that were. The band for the Partridge family. My my dad was a uh, uh, was a Shirley Jones, and Lisa's father was the little girl tambourine player in all the sessions. <laughs> <laughs> Wes Farrell was the producer on those things, and really? oh yeah, yeah, uh. yeah. And the Sid and Marty Croft show, which I've told you about, right? Amir. Yeah. You're, you're gonna my make my dad like freak out if he hears this. He's done lots of other cool you know, your things. Your father did all of the Steely Dan <laughs> records, so your dad was much well, cooler a, than mine at that time. Well, no, they were and both all cool. The Motown stuff. <laughs> they did a lot of cool things. So what, what else? Like, go through the the resume. Like, what else has your father done? Well, my father really started um, on uh, Motown sessions, um, and he. I mean, he played with everybody. I didn't even know what all he played with until recently when he tried to design a website and he was trying to write his discography and all the albums he's played on. And Mm -hmm. it's just... Same with my dad. Immense. Yeah. I mean, mean, almost every record that was on the radio, 
in the 60s, like from 63 on, my dad was on every song. You know, being a, per- per- being a percussionist, yeah. So back then it was like a percussionist was really a cool thing to be. Yeah, you want to be on a Phil Spector session as a percussionist. That's the wall of sound. Right. Gong, and like, gong, gong. I mean, my dad also played on, like Marvin Gaye, he played congas, you know, on what's going on and that whole record and you know, stuff like that. When we went on tour with, uh, when I don't know what tour it was, Dirty Mind maybe, uh, with Prince, we in Detroit. They took us to the Motown Mansion for a little tour, mm-hmm. and there was a picture of my father on the wall. Wow, that's dope. Wow. And uh, my Seven. dad never knew that. And, and what was your dad's Seven. name? Was his, his name's Gary Gary L. Coleman? Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Amazing. So uh, you can go on the internet and see both of our fathers on the uh, Pet Sounds um, recording sessions because my father's doing all the he did yeah. played all the organ stuff. Yeah, like good vibrations and all that kind oh, of yeah, stuff. Oh yeah, there's a great video. There's a great video of my father, young and. Cute. And your dad's name, Wendy. Was Michael. Michael Melvoin. I remember uh, your father beaming with pride as uh, he introduced you at the Grammys. Do you know it? On that very night when my father introduced us on the Grammys, and my daughter happens to be one of the members of the Revolution, <laughs> Prince looked over at me like. I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna kill you. Because normally, and I, was like, I didn't do it. I didn't know. I know nothing. The mystery. I was gonna say normally, like you know, they would, you know, whoever. Uh, I think John Denver was still hosting at the time. Like for for artists of you guys' stature, normally like someone would big would do yeah, that. And I was like, that's I found pride. Normally, like a, a, a narrow staff member would just say what the rules and regulations were, like mm-hmm. not introduce the biggest act of the night. So I always wondered. Oh, wait, so he spoiled the surprise? My, wait. Oh, yeah, my father was the uh, president of the National Academy of Recording oh, Arts and Sciences. Maris. And that year, which is really funny because all of our Grammys and all of our plaques have my father's name. That's yeah. awesome. As the president of Naris. It's very trippy. It just is... There are so many there's connections. There's so many connections. So that night, my father, you know... The National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences was like to welcome everybody to the Grammys tonight and blah, 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 which they normally do. And then he introduced (laughs) Prince and the Revolution. And this is extra special for me because my daughter happens to be a member of the Revolution. And Prince, at the time, he would be like, if he, he was like, you know, I mean, there was this whole aesthetic we had, like, don't smile, man, look badass, look don't cool. do, 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 do. Yeah, like, it was and, all mystery. Uh, you know, like, if there was any kind of cuddly, cuddliness moment, right? when you needed to Hi, be Daddy. badass, he would be like, I'm going to kill you, you don't blow the bubble on us, <laughs> don't do it, I don't want to care about this at all. <laughs> That's crazy. Yo, so, okay, I... This is one. Do you remember anything about the Sunshine Superman sessions with Melba Moore at all? I remember. Yeah, very much so. Really? Wait, what's, the, what's the story behind that? Melba Moore. Wait, before, before you get, we get into the, the story, story let's, let's, let's check out Melba Moore's Sunshine Superman with you, Wendy, and your twin sister, Susanna, singing in the children's chorus. That was Melba Moore, Sunshine Superman on Questlove Supreme. Uh, we're here with Wendy and Lisa, Prince's band, The Revolution. 
I don't know. For for me, with with Sunshine Superman, I mean, just as a digger, as as a crate digger. You're just so crazy. I can't even believe. Well, you no. Put I mean, that. like the way that you know hip hoppers discover stuff is sure. to look up the most unusual things ever, sure. and then that's how we dive into the pool of music sure. through research. So you get these albums. You're like, oh, okay, I'm gonna loop that, and then. You know, some producers actually read the credits and see who else is on it. And I kept seeing, hmm, Melvoin, Melvoin. Yeah. Oh, crap. And then, yeah, you know, yeah. and then it yeah, just... There's not very many Melvoins. We're all very closely related. I know this now. So I, I guess I got to bring you guys to middle America. How did you, why did you leave L.A. to, to go to Minnesota? Like, how did your paths even cross? Or I guess, Lisa, you were first. Yeah, no? well... It, it is it is kind of strange growing up in L.A. and Hollywood and being born to the into the music business. You know, like that was the steel mill. Yeah. You know, it, our town. You know, I grew up in Hollywood. Went to Hollywood High. You know, my dad worked in the studios, all local. You know, we it was all right there. And uh, and then I moved to Minneapolis to make it big. <laughs> <laughs> So lucky. <laughs> I mean, did you go there specifically to work with Prince, or was yeah. it like, mm, let me, yeah, yeah. let me? No, 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 I don't no, think no. you chose that state. No, to it go was like, like, are you kidding? Because like Funky Town just came out. It was about getting out of there. It's like, take me to someplace else. Uh, no, um, it was just through his management company. He he had a female keyboard player, Gail Chapman. Yo, right. And. Um, so how did Owen Hunsey know to seek you out? Well, by that, Owen had just been fired, and he had a new management, oh. Farnoli and Carvalho. Can we probably say their name? Because it's Cavall- like nine Steve, of them. Steve Farnoli, right. Bob Cavallo, and um, Joe, Ruffalo. Joe Ruffalo. So it was um, Cavallo, Ruffalo, Farnoli. So it's only three. I always thought it was like four or five names. Well, it sounds like it because right. there's a lot and, of consonants and Vito in there. And, uh, and Guido and right. uh, <laughs> you, know, you don't want to know the other guys. Okay. Exactly. We, we don't talk about those guys. <laughs> so they, they, I mean, what was So, uh, well, they were just looking for another girl. And uh, a friend of mine, who was my best friend in school, she had run away from home and got a job at their company, you know, secretary. Mm-hmm. And she heard about it and she was... <gasps> Oh my God, Lisa would be perfect. And she told me about it. And she said, Prince is looking for. And I was like, Who's Prince? Did you know who? Yeah. No, I didn't. When did you first hear of Prince? Oh, uh, I. When I was knew 13 and I was a. I left my. It was the summer of 77. And I went. My sister and I escaped our houses club, in the middle right? of the night and we went to the Starwood, which is an old club here in town. You could look it up. And they had two places, they had two, there was a disco, and then there was a live stage. So the live stage, you'd see like secret concerts of Devo, and you'd see, you know, I mean, that's, I saw amazing performances there, but in the disco, that's where I was. And this one night, the DJ puts on Soft and Wet. And I'm, I'm 13. spoke to you. But I'm like, I literally ran up to the booth and went, Who's that girl? <laughs> and the guy looks at me and he's, that's not a girl, it's Prince. He's 17, he's from Minneapolis. From that moment on, I knew and studied everything. And then 
finding out that this one got the job playing with him, I was like, you're kidding me. Do you know who he is? No. And then she's, I'm in the kitchen of the Coleman's house in Hollywood Hills, and Lisa has a cassette. She's just come back from Minneapolis. She comes back with a cassette of Head and puts it on in the kitchen. So that when that song came on and I was listening to it, I was like, crushed with envy and pride and I like she was perfect she was the perfect addition to his she was so schooled and highly cultured and to hear her voice say I'm just a virgin and I'm on my way to be wed you could tell it wasn't it was uncomfortable for her to say the way she speaks it was so innocent sounding but behind that voice, if you listen carefully, that's a really serious person saying that. Mm-hmm. And I got that from it. And I was like, this just makes this whole song that freakier. This is great. It was almost so dangerous to me. It's like, oh my God. It's not like some weird freaky prostitute sounding person. It was like this young girl. It didn't sound girl. like a caricature. It no. sounded real. It was a trip. <clears throat> That's weird. Like you, you had a moment of pride, and I had a moment of how to not get on punishment <laughs> for three months. <laughs> Funny. It's weird. Like everyone has a soft and wet story. Yeah. Of like yeah. a moment of discovery of this guy. Wow. So, uh, I mean, obviously, I, I know that Gail Chapman left uh, yeah. the band under tense, uh, kind of this. Under, un, under this tension of, of having to sort of cross religion? the line. Well, yeah, I mean, religion sometimes, uh, I mean, can oppress people from doing certain things. So did you, were you automatically told from the gate, like, we are trying to push boundaries never seen before and that sort of thing? Like, did you no. realize that you would be the... No, I just, I, uh, I didn't, I don't think I... Between Prince and myself, I think it was a different kind of relationship. It wasn't really that, um, like, we didn't really conceive of anything first. We sort of just explored it and then conceived, you know know what I mean? So it was back and forth. But I did see that in what he was doing, and I loved it. I loved that it was outrageous and, you know. But you did see his Star is Born poster in the house when you walked in. He had a Star is Born first. Yeah, well, yeah. When I first flew out to meet him, and he picked me up at the airport, and it was pretty funny. And he uh, drove? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So that weird. says a lot. Like, now it's like, oh, have my manager's car service pick you Like, so there was oh, no, no cars. No, no, no. He no, picked no, me up in his Fiat. He picked you up in his Fiat, yeah. His little Fiat, and we drove wow. to his house, and first I even, like, Fiat. smoked a cigarette in his car. Like, mind if I smoke? And he was like, I'm sure he wanted to say, don't uh, smoke. Yeah, like you're fired. But he let me smoke, and I, I used to smoke. And um, yeah, so we got to his house, and um, and it was it was a trip because I didn't know what he was about, you know, and he didn't know what I was about. And we were looking at each other like, what are you about? And he pointed downstairs. I go down there. There's a piano, and and then I was looking at the posters on the wall. There's like Chris Christopherson and Barbara Streisand. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I was a little bit like, whoa. I'm certain that somebody put that up there for him. Like, I can't see him doing his own housework. And... 
Oh, that's not true. He did a little yes, bit. Yes, he did. He was investigated? Uh, yeah. Yeah. He knew how well, to put a he piece was of... Like, Cloth he on was a lamp. into <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's you know what I mean? that was That's his. You know, and he yeah. could like just putting things on wall, like spray paint. Yeah, <laughs> pieces of paper. Was he extra meticulous? He seemed like he was somebody that was extra meticulous. <gasps> later like that. on, he later was. on, he was in the beginning. Yeah. Now he was. In the beginning, it was, he was, it was, it was a, a little mess. sloppy. <laughs> yeah, it was a mess. Yes. <laughs> You know, he was sloppy. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it was messy. I I have pictures of the laundry room. But you know, and that <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, it's funny because he did laundry. No, I'm playing. Well, I no. ended up doing it and <laughs> making fried egg sandwiches. He he, at one of his last uh, piano uh, concerts, he he talks about meeting Lisa for the first time. It's the second to the last performance of his, and he he says in that very moment where he points down and says, "You go downstairs," he calls. Steve Farnoli, and he says, I don't think this is going to work out. Really? Yeah. I don't think this is, because there was something about the way... He said I didn't look him in the eye. Yeah, something was weird to him. And then... I thought you weren't supposed to. Yeah, that's yeah. what Jamie said. Don't look him in the eye. And then he says... No, I did, uh, you're sp- not supposed to look me in the eyes. That's oh, what he didn't know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what is, uh, ends up happening is he says, you know, go downstairs, and then he calls Farnoli on the phone. He says, I, 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 you're going to get her... Got to get her out of here. I don't think get her a flight home. I don't think this is going to work. And as he's saying that, she's downstairs and she opens the piano and she just starts playing. And if anybody in here has ever heard Lisa play by herself and what, yeah, what comes out between Sati and Hindemith, and he said, "I'll call you back." <laughs> <laughs> so you had a classical background. I mean, when when did, when did you first start playing piano? As soon as I could reach it. Yeah, really? yeah. It was just in the house, you know. And my mom was a singer, and she'd have piano players come over. And there was this guy, Dick Gray, who was a very depressed man, <laughs> but played so beautifully and would accompany my mom when she would practice. And um, she was a jazz singer. And I would just watch and, like, look at the shapes and I just always, and I still have that in my mind, like shapes. It's shapes, you know. Sounds like yeah. synesthesia to me. Yeah, I was about to say that mm-hmm. it's a form of synesthesia. Yeah. So when you heard sound, you saw shapes. Yeah. Well, it's it's kind of funny because Prince always said that your sound always added a lot of color to his music. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just, yeah, it's really visual, you know, and and so and that's how I would try to recreate it when I when after they would finish and I'd go to the piano and try to make shapes again, you know. <laughs> Usually, well, every virtuoso I know, at least in pop music, you know, they have this higher education first, like they, they like the Motown guys were jazz musicians yeah, and yeah. Uh, this pop stuff's whatever. And yeah, if you classical can play jazz. Music. So, did you feel as though, or did your family make you feel as though, like, oh, you're kind of lowering yourself, like you could be the next... You could be on a this level bit. of classical music. And <laughs> yeah, a little bit. My father had a bit of that because <clears throat> he really did. He did a, a lot of times. You know, Lisa, you've got the talent to be a, a concert pianist, you know. Right. And I, I really, I saw that for you and your future. And, the, you know, I would marry the conductor and, you know, all this stuff. And right, I was like, right. Dad, no, I'm going to be the conductor. You don't understand. Aha. You know, okay. and, and, um, and it was, and he shouldn't, he knows I mean, and my mom knew the truth because I grew up, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know and I didn't care mm. what I would play. I just wanted to play and I wanted to play everything forever. 
and they got me lessons and and I was just you know lucky to be advantaged the way I was that they supported me playing it you know at all and, sure. and uh and it was just my house and my brother my brother and sister were both musicians my sister was a guitar player and my brother was a everything <laughs> cellist well here's a nice little tidbit as well is that lisa's father gary was friends with tom oberheim ah, and ha- they ah, had they ah. had some of the first synths in the house and yeah. lisa also learned all of her skills with an arp 2600 in the house yeah. and so gary was doing a lot of music concrete in his he was studio. an electronic music he was a, yeah. composer yeah yeah, yeah. He was, yeah an atonal composer and Lisa learned all of her tape skills and marking and patching. And yeah, we had to, we didn't, you know, synthesizers were, they were just like modular things that you had to patch together and then we would cut tape and little pieces and flip it and my dad taught me all this stuff. So you stuff had that and, education early. Yeah. Oh yeah, she was a teen, like a young teen learning that stuff. So by the time the Oberheim came, when you were able to actually play chords on it and yeah. not like one note at a right, time. Right, exactly. Oh my God, then you, I knew, you're the I knew how it worked. She was the yeah. perfect person for Prince. Perfect. So it was, yeah, and in that way, my dad was right because he said, if you have the skill and then you have this knowledge, you're going to do something. Okay, so I, I have to jump ahead uh, a little bit. Uh, Rick James's street songs and Rick in the at least the David Ritz edition of his autobiography, uh, autobiography talks of stealing uh, your keyboards and their already made patches to record street songs. Um, so by that point, uh, was the Overheim like how much programming did you like now? Of course, if you have a Triton or whatever, it's like ready made and you know. It kind of does half the work for you, at least to get the, the patch sound you want. But oh. how did you have to pre-program this stuff to, specifically to get that? Well, it, uh, to be honest, in the very beginning, it was um, it was actually really cool to just have the big, fat, kind of like sloppy sounding, you know, <clears throat> whatever the presets were the, if, when they were first coming out with presets, you right. know, and they just had a sound. Um, the only thing that we used to do is just like, just turn the filter <laughs> up. Just, so there's no grand design, like you just. No, in the beginning there kind of wasn't. It was just play they were it just toys. loud. Those were toys. Yeah, then. and it just had a sound of its own. It was just as we would, as we progressed and started learning more, and then we would kind of tweak the sounds and make more sounds. Um, but in the beginning, no, it was really like that's why it. You can get an Oberheim now, and it sounds like you know you're whatever C1, and it's. Those are those horns, you know. Right. So, did you did you guys discover that your equipment was stolen to make this record? And every time you listen to Super Freak, like that's my keyboard. (laughs) Well, no. I mean, my purple rain guitars were ripped off. That pissed me off. Really? Yeah, my purple ones. Wait, who? Whoa, how? There was no other opening act but you guys. Well, be, no, it, it was, was later, at rehearsal, was rehearsal, and we were loading the the trucks, and someone was eyeing those. So co- they, the, they knew instantly <laughs> that this just, stuff oh, would be priceless, and yeah, uh, so bummed. I know. So an, another theme that uh, I noticed that's recurring is the meticulous uh, hours of and relentless hours of practice that you guys have had to um, put in. 
and I guess the ongoing joke, at least for all the things that I've collected, was that if there's anyone that's an expert at James Brown's body heat, it's <laughs> you guys. Oh, man. Oh. Just when you said body heat, it was like a cue. B flat. Like, yeah. B flat. Exactly. I'm thinking B flat. Oh my god. Yeah, I was robots. You're like slowly. I turn step by step. Well, I, I would assume that he was working out stuff in his head in real time, but well, he'd have us not move for four hours, and he'd be practicing dance moves. Really? Yeah, we were a machine. So yeah. instead of just him just on, we to were the loop. We were the loop. Just press go. He'd we say, "Okay, go," and then don't move. Don't move. And he'd be doing all these. Well, I, I kind of wanted there. There was a period, at least, that I noticed uh, somewhere between late controversy. No, even uh, I'll say between late 1999 tour, where his dancing was sort of awkward. Mm-hmm. I.e. the dirty mind thing, like it was more like a Mick Jagger thing. <laughs> Mick Jagger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then I guess the first time I realized, like, oh God, this this guy's inherited the baton from James Brown's Tammy show was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess when you guys released the the baby baby I'm a star uh, video clip from Maryland, and I actually saw you guys as the new JBs, like. Was that just the relentless hours of rehearsing and, and you know someone mentioned something about that and I have to say that this is all a maturity thing, you know, and in those specific years, he became mature and he felt very comfortable in his body, and the band that was behind him was relentlessly in tune to every move he made, and that was countless hours of not moving and giving him as much confidence and safety in that environment to perfect that thing. It's like he was on the high wire, yeah. you know, and we were like the balance, you know. Mm-hmm. We, we gave him the, the oomph underneath to keep him up there, you know, and he could just spin around on it and mm-hmm. we just never kept, never looked away, you know. We kept our eyes on him and that, that we just became a, a body yeah there's there's probably uh i guess out there in the in the in the atmosphere there's probably i'll say maybe 18 or 19 hours of the morphing of baby i'm a star <laughs> from when you guys were first rehearsing it for the show mm. and it sounded very much like the album version mm-hmm. and then suddenly like the bpms get higher, and then suddenly you hear like the cues come in and I mean, at what point did you realize that, you know, with the, with the idea of him stopping and all these cues, that had to have been a nightmare, at least tour-wise and, and... No. Not nightmare. Uh, I not mean, at all. Not at all. It's kind no, of the contrary. No, it, was, it, it made it, it, made it uh, the job at hand, and it, we were, it was, a, you know, if you choose to take this mission, you know what I mean? We, we were there and ready to do it. Yeah, it and, was like... What else you got? Well, Go ahead, try and, and stump the band. Exactly, <laughs> try and stump the band. But at the same time, you know, every time we'd add some kind of like, if we put mutiny into something, or if we took a groove from somewhere else and, you know, like tacked it in, it was, every time we were dialed in in a groove, we looked forward to getting to that spot where that groove would where happen. it could happen. Because... And then he would start doing the little... 
Yeah, you do the thing. And, and whenever hand it was dialed where... in, it was almost like that thing that happens when you're when you first hit Mach two or three, and you just yeah. you're, you're it's out like of the a runner's high. Yeah, you you feel like the groove actually sits so tight, you feel like you're in slow motion. When the groove is that good, and everyone looked forward to that moment, and every time he wanted to push it and do more of it and more of it, we had the runners high with him. So, it, okay, I, I know I'm asking like a lot of privileged questions, like the only <laughs> only stuff that I've heard, <laughs> like the yeah. average person hasn't heard. Um, but I, I kind of have to wonder if this is true. Um, so if I tend to notice that better sh- the the best shows ever are always the shows with the least or in the cities with the least expectations. Mm-hmm. So I'll say that you know a town like uh, Providence, Rhode Island, mm-hmm. of I mean, as a person who's heard maybe at least seventy percent of all the Purple Rain concerts and like mm-hmm. studied meticulously, I noticed that some of the smaller cities, you guys were just like in this incredible zone, mm-hmm. but. I would listen to a New York show or an LA show, and I'd be like, "Ah, oh, man, they didn't, they didn't do it like that." So, I can only imagine, and only having talked to Alan, noticing that like Michael Jackson might be an artist. That's or I was just gonna Bruce say. Springsteen. It depends who's on the list, who was on the guest list. Yeah. So if there was a lot of people on the guest list. The show became really tense. mannered and tense. If yeah. it was like you know, if it was you know like. It was Kalamazoo, Michigan. You guys had the time of your life. Who cares? Because it was for the fans. I mean, it was more. We didn't, and it wasn't because it was famous people. It was more like we thought of them as suits. Mm. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you you two also hold that I guess the the, the distinctive and dubious honor of sort of crossing over from his stage world into his studio, Mm. which I guess the the folklore is that. You know, that that was Fort Knox or, you know, just like no one gets influence into... No, they didn't. It's true. There was just a small group of people that... How are you able to even gain trust on that level, at least to play him things like, here, listen to this and listen to this? And li-. He just offered it. I mean... Well, I think he said, I, I need inspiration. What do you guys no, got? No, 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 well, no. I mean, for me, I, if you don't mind, because no, I was it. there early on, and even, you know, like, I lived in his house, you know, in early, early days, and, you know, he'd take a nap or something, and, like, I'd be in the studio messing around. And, and he said one time, I, and I remember that piece of music I did for Miles, mm-hmm. just my stepdad, it was just for fun. Uh, and um, he was taking a nap, and he was hearing me play and everything, and he was just like, yeah, that was the, I had the best dreams, and, you know, that was so beautiful. And, and so he knew what we had, you know. And Wait, can I stop you one second? You said the most amazing thing. What? Prince left. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> oh, no, it was Prince just he, like he blinked. <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, 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 he got something in his eye just me, for a second. This is, this is something people don't know, but this is really, really cute. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Okay. So in his bedrooms, they're, you know, I mean, because he sleeps at, slept at funny hours, so, you know, the rooms were black. But <laughs> the, the, the blankets and the comforters were about three feet deep, right? <laughs> like, just, so he'd, like, you'd, you'd, 
you'd just see like a little tube you, of like yeah, an imprint like, of a little body. What's that on the bed? Oh, like it's a cradle. Prince. Yeah, just like a little cradle. And, you know, yeah, in his little his basket. You just see just maybe a tiny little pillow imprint. But this little tube. Oh, I mean, it was, he was. He was oh, that sounds little, all cuddly. He was a tender was button. cuddly. I thought it was like the 1999 inner cover with like the, <laughs> the neon lights and the watercolors. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, depending on his mood. It's when doves cry, really sleeping in the bathtub. Right. Yeah. Right. No, he was, he, oh no, he was a, no, he was kind of a kitty with a ball of he yarn. He was my little pony. Yeah. Lisa and I used to call him my little pony. Did he hate that or like? No, he hated it, but he loved it. Ponies were awesome. <laughs> Who you know and girls? Girls love ponies, cute ponies. <laughs> Never see. mind. Let's change this up. <laughs> so, I mean, at, at the at the at the rate where you know, I, I guess the late '84, mid '85. I mean, you guys were pretty much a Lennon McCartney combination together. I mean. Could you speak on, on just at the point where you were full-fledged collaborators? And it became apparent that he really relied on us for a certain thing when he would be sending just a master with just a, a, a scratch vocal and a piano idea and say, finish this. Wow. Trust. Yeah. And so a lot of Sign of the Times was done that way. So but just scale. He was really, he was more, you know, making the movies and getting, you know, he was getting his head into other things. And well, Strange Relationship was like that, right? Yeah. And what's weird was that you guys weren't using patches. You guys were, well, there was. Oh, we played on Those were stuff. Middle Eastern, like. Yeah, we would get uh, Yeah, I mean, whatever her brother was also like a proficient yeah, my musician brother was with Arabic an instruments. Arab. So he, he, the song We Can Fuck was. David's song around David, the world today was David yeah. and his, you know, Arab and Farsi influences. So we use that stuff, you know. That's amazing. Um, okay, I, I know in in private I always ask about the the Japanese run, yeah. but um, that was tough. I guess in in, in the past few months, uh, I guess video has finally surfaced yeah. of the, the smashing of the guitars yeah. which you told me when you saw yeah. the smashing you. I was with the, we just me and Lisa and Bobby looked at each other and went it's over it's over because why would he destroy it? because he was already yeah. pissed he was pissed anyway there was something happening and he was pissed that sounds and there were more people was... on the stage like Sheila's band was on the stage he looked at me a couple times during like, really pivotal sections and said lay out and when he says lay out, yeah, you're good. out. It's not good when Prince says When he says lay out, out, not on the one or just... Right. When he looks at you and doesn't want you to play, he says lay out. And when he said he it to me, I was like, oh, this is not good. What's going on? And then he looked at Miko and said, turn Miko up. And I was like, ooh, there's something happening here. And then when we played Purple Rain that night, and he smashed the guitar, I was just, wow, really, is this happening? I think it's happening, and we got off stage, and I was panicked, I felt it, I felt it big, and Lisa was like, stop overreacting, stop overreacting, dun-dun-dun, I said, no, no, I'm telling you, this is it, it's done, 
we all flew back to our homes. Uh, Prince flew back to LA, had a rental there. It's a funny story. We flew back again, and he called us two days later to go to the rental and pulled us into the room and said, I'm going to be going in a different direction, and I can't ask you guys to wear nippleless bras and crotchless panties. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which he would True that. Yeah, true that. <laughs> and we went, yeah, that's true. You know, some, letting somebody go is probably, or at least reprimanding someone is, that's one of the hardest things I have to do, and I hate, oh, I'd no, rather I slice my it. arm off. I can't stand it. No, so, I mean, I, I get I'm amazed that he even he, it was didn't inc- send note that, okay. It was incredible that he had, th- th- and that, that he, what he said was the way for him to feel comfortable enough yeah, to let us go. Because he way. knew that Lisa and I would go, well, you're right, we, we won't do that. He knew that that was his in, and I understood that was his way of saying it, and I knew ultimately that wasn't the truth. He just was ready to take full control back and felt like I'm, I've spread He's myself too, too thin. on you guys. Yeah. To yeah. What, spread year myself. what year was this one? It was just turning into, it 87. was almost 87. Wow. And did you guys go straight into your solo album? Right away. That? Me and Bobby Me and Lisa. Bob, yeah, we went. Yeah, I have to say that, you know, more more than uh, I think the album came out what August thirty first of eighty seven. I'm sorry. Wow, Boss Bill's looking at me like who cares? No, I'm like just how do you no, remember? I remember. Their, their album came out this, the same day that Michael Jackson's Bad came out, oh, okay. and I, I distinctly remember listening to their record more than like you know the whole no. world was waiting for Bad. And <laughs> it's the day I caught you. I know, it's hilarious. Wait, what happened? <laughs> she was she heard bad on the radio. Who? She called me from on the freeway. Oh. On the freeway. Like, I had one of those phones that big cell phones. Oh, the cell phone with the suitcase. I had her on the phone after I heard bad on the radio. Mm, whatever. And I was like, here's the single. Wait for it, Lisa. Keep that in your head. Put them together. And that was... I was like, you're kidding me. You're ki- cause this is a musician joke. It's like circus music. It's circus music. <laughs> it's something that we joked about years prior as it being like a joke musician. Yes. Yeah. That thing that goes like this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the single, and then we were both like, "It's a, it's a smash, smash! Oh my god, circus music! Give the people what they want." Exactly, circus. So, real quick, one, one or both of you were there for a meeting between Michael and Prince, right? Not me. No, we weren't. We weren't there. He came back. No, we were. No, that was different. Oh, was that when he wanted when he when Prince? Got the call to sing on. We are the world. No, no on, on dad. And, and he's like, the first line is, "Your butt is mine." Okay, who's singing that one? <laughs> <laughs> he said that on an interview with Chris Rock. He's like, "Imagine me saying your butt is mine." Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> right? Like, it's not, not gonna sing, happen. I'm not singing it to you. You're not singing it to me. me. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He was like, Mm-mm. "So how how did I mean not how did it feel to you know start creating." music on your own without his input but I mean what were those first few I 
you know, I've loved everything that you guys have done uh, in your solo career. West Wing, like everything. Yeah, there's even West Wing point. bootlegs out there in wow. <laughs> with these horns. <laughs> yes, that's how, that's funny. That's how that's how obsessed with your fan base. Is. He, like, here's the thing, and I said this at at uh, at his uh, one of his um, memorials. Uh-huh. Um, everything that I played then and still play now, I say to myself, I wonder if he'd like it. Really. To this day, I still do it. <clears throat> so he was sort of a, a measure of my standards. push and my standards. That's a hell of a standard to have. Yeah. That's an amazing standard to have. Wow. I mean, I can I'm go... sure you feel exactly the same way. Hell yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't know why no one's just <laughs> called me out. <laughs> you guys are just a revolution karaoke band. No, but I mean, that's... <laughs> Because you're not. No, you're not. You're not. No, but I mean, it's it's. I mean, to me, the the you maintained the an identity. You maintained yeah, you're an not identity. An imitation. You're not an imitation. There are plenty of people out there that are fanatics for him, and have emulated and learned everything, and they do not have an identity. There's appreciation, it, and then there's imitation. Exactly. Yeah, right. You know. It's Actually, just, okay. I have to ask. What did? Were you guys aware of? Okay. Okay, I, I work with a lot of hip hop, which really? I mean, yeah, I don't know if you wow, know those, cool. those hip hop kids. Um, I mean, you know, we we once had an aesthetic in the '90s, like you know, no biting allowed, no copying, like you know, do your own thing individually. Now, like everything's just derivative of of each other. But um, were you guys aware of the Ready for the Worlds and? Oh. Yeah, but I don't know. I, see, when I, as soon as I heard Oh Sheila, I was like, oh my God, here we go. Here we go. But the thing it's is, true. is that I feel like I always felt that this wasn't just like, oh, let me let me copy Prince or whoever. The, I just feel like, okay, you guys just happen to have the blueprint and these are the new set of rules. So the way that Cameo made yeah, shit and the Commodore, sure. like that was out the windows, and now this is this is the standard. So yeah, it's just like people, well, sure, it's like yeah. vocalists but now. Were you Every- guys like laughing at like you know those groups in the early eighties that were like some of them, only some, really, only some. But for the most part, I got it. I you know, it's, it's just like everything. You know, chick singers in the sixties don't sound like chick singers in the eighties. Right. Chick singers now with all that melisma and the and the mid range stuff is like what everyone sounds like mm-hmm. that now and that's just standard. Right. So I think it's that's just how everything. we yeah it's a human thing how we evolve kind of hundredth monkey you yeah know. yeah but were you guys this this accepting and this politically correct? <laughs> uh, patient, no no way. We're like, patient zero. No. Wow. no. No, and, we were no. no, we were cocky. Are you yeah. kidding me? Because, well, because at one point, I until I started hearing the rehearsal tapes, I didn't even know if you guys were even aware of modern music. But then <laughs> yeah. I would hear like rehearsal tapes and hear like, oh, okay, he does know about Talking Heads and. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, and, I'm, I, I, you know, it's a I, I have to say, <laughs> I'm the. Wendy's always I'm, informed. I'm the DJ. I I know I know everything. And when I when something was good, I pulled him aside immediately. I mean, I played him "Slave to the Rhythm" 
and said, you have to listen to what happened with these chords right now. Oh, yeah. we Trevor Horn. Right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> Steve Lipson. Oh, Steve, Steve Lipson. Not Trevor? Trevor? And Trevor. Trevor, yes, co-produced it, and but Bruce Steve Willey, Lipson and Bruce Willie did those. Yeah. And that was important for me to make sure he heard that. When, oh. when I remember in, after we had broken the band up and um, Do the Right Thing had just come out, mm-hmm. and Lisa and I went to Minneapolis, and I was a fanatic for the main title song. And ah, I, yeah, the score. And oh, yeah. I, um, really? I put it on there and at Paisley, and he... Wait, he, you were still friends? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And he... He seemed visibly angry at the track. And it was because he was so uneasy, I think, with Chuck D. And what that, the cadence of Chuck's voice being in that lower sort of demanding frequency kind of freaked him out. It didn't seem, it was like, why are you, why am I being assaulted with that? Right. And everybody, as soon as it was played in the room, everybody was getting up and dancing. And I think he re- it's like the metal people when they hear Nirvana. They right. go, oh, my God, uh, it's changed. And, and I think it that he knew it changed yeah. right there. He knew yeah. it. Yeah, but he also, he had a different goal, you know? And I think he sometimes w- maybe found it hard to... When it, when the weight would would dip, because I mean, come on, Chuck D, was, oh. it, that was genius. Oh, what a voice! And he knew it, but it was it was the it was almost the antithesis of what Prince was trying to do. Like he was aiming at your grandmother now, mm-hmm. not at your kids. Chuck D was aiming at, at, the at the kids. And then Prince came back with "Sexy Motherfucker" and "Housequake." And yeah, it's like I can do that. I'll too. do that. No. Yeah, I could fuck you up. <laughs> Oops. I mean, oftentimes, like, you know, there's syndromes of people kind of embracing things that they normally would resent in the first place and then wind up embodying that. I but think sort that's of a, just youth. Yeah. You just, you, you know, time goes by and you go, I get it. I Adapt totally to it. get it. Um, well, okay. Uh, on, on, on a final note, I, I would just like to know. Uh, with the, the 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 reunion of the group and carrying out the mission, um, how how's this process been with bringing the band? It's like the Blues Brothers. Wow, Painful. it's pain. Blood on your thumb. Yeah, Woo. it's been blood on your thumb. Lisa Lisa <laughs> described us. Lisa described me and Bobby and, and Matt and Mark <clears throat> as five people jumping out of an airplane with our parachutes on trying to do formations trying after to, like, 20 grab years. each other's hands. Someone went down there too far and it, like, we're, trying, we're trying to oh, find well, the formation. I, I have to say that I uh, haven't seen the show um, especially when, when April came on. I mean I, I told you I, I ran out of there like I couldn't take it. Some people cried. Some people cried. Some people Alas. ran out and got some chicken. People ran some people ran out and got chicken. Pussy. I was like, I need chicken. Let me yeah, run out. Chicken was sour on the wall. Need my driver right now. Well, I, I really want to thank you too, uh, 
for for everything that you guys represent. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, you you would think the smallest soundbite would mean nothing, but it's just like you know, you read like, oh, okay, she's in Joni Mitchell. Now I'm at the library stealing all the Joni Mitchell records, and I'm hearing that you're playing more chords with your fingers. And now I'm making my keyboard players play like nine notes with just five fingers, and the Lisa you know, can Lisa does three on each yeah, of the thumbs. Yeah. And I've always told you, like, you know, you are the heir apparent to Jimmy Chank Nolan of the JVs, and it's, it's, wow. you, you two are definitely one of my favorite people ever, and I thank you so much for doing the show with us. And, and just on a, on, a, on a note for you, you have been the greatest champion of him in such a beautiful, respectful, intelligent way, and you have such a way of pointing out just the right stuff that would be, would help the listeners understand him and what his musical influence is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look, the revolution wasn't, you know, we're not, you know, a bunch of Juilliard grads. We we were a band that was meat and potatoes and clocked really well, Mm -hmm. but we were an entity, and to have you validate that for us is really yeah. lovely for us. Wow, yeah. I'm honored. Ladies and gentlemen, Lisa and Wendy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. 
Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. We're on the road broadcasting from Minneapolis, where we just finished talking to some core members of Prince's former band, The Revolution. Now let's chop it up with uh, Prince's original guitarist, Des Dickerson, and original bassist, Andre Simone. Give it up, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Um, yeah, so we've been pretty much uh, just reminiscing, telling uh, stories, and I'm kind of interested in everyone's beginnings before uh, they arrive in Minnesota and sort of develop, uh, I guess, uh, or become a part of the movement that will become uh, the movement that will influence a lot of people. Now, of course, Andre, I know that you're probably key to the very beginnings of, of Prince's life um, as far as his uh, musical movement is. Um, but what was, what was your musical background as far as your family's concerned and before you guys developed what you did? Like, what was childhood like? And you were born in Minnesota? Yeah. Okay. Well, my dad was a musician. That was my musical background. And then my family, my brothers and sisters, I was the youngest of six. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they all had various musical, you know, tastes. And that had a lot to do with, uh, you know, just um, my, pers- um, my personal kind of perspective on music. So. What did your father play? Bass. Okay. Was he, I mean, what was the environment like? And Bobby and, and Fink explain, uh, sort of explained how they grew up in the suburbs of Minnesota. And I didn't realize that there was such a deep music culture here. I mean, as far as them explaining what the folk music was like, but I mean, what area was your father in that? We are the projects. Say no more, brother. Yeah. I speak new English. Okay. Okay. Projects are all, all pretty much all the same all around the country. So, yeah. so how did, I know that, you know, music was very regional. Um, you know, now with the internet, you know, someone in Siberia can get right. a reference uh, that came from southern Georgia that, you know, in, in lightning time. But, I mean, how, how did culture and, and, and what was hip and what was not hip and what was, you know, how, how did you discern what was what? Well, I mean, you know, again, um, <laughs> and I, don't, I probably don't have to tell you this. I mean, you know, being black, mm-hmm. period, you know, um, in America is an interesting, you know, just reality. And so being black in, in a predominantly, very predominantly white society, you know, and, and obviously during the time that I was growing up and becoming conscious and understanding what was going on in the world, you know, it's a very, very, um, you know, moving experience because music is, is, is unbelievable. I mean, because Motown, you know, obviously, mm-hmm. um, James Brown, you know, and then, you know, obviously, you know, the Beatles and, you know, Jackson 5, a lot, of, a lot of stuff was happening. And a lot of people were saying some very, very um, interesting stuff, you know. And for, you know, for my, my family was very, very militant, very much, you know, um, into the community. So just, I mean, I think that combination really had a lot to do with, you know, musically, a lot to do with at least where I came from, where my family was coming from. Because we were, you know, I had a cousin that was in the music. He was in a band, and that's how we even got exposed to a band. You know, my cousin uh, was in a band, so we, you know, I went to go see him rehearse when I was like, you know, a kid, and that's how I even knew how you conducted rehearsals. So I brought that, you know, attitude toward uh, when we started a band. 
So your your band experience, uh, I would assume in school, like what was the first band that you joined or formed? We started Grand Central, yeah. So Grand Central was your first? That was all of our first band, yeah. Really? Well, me and Prince and and Charles, you know. How did you two meet to even know that you had something in common? You know, like I said, I I came from the projects. Right. My mom, um, uh, um, you know, she was, um, I guess, at 15, you know, had her first child at 14, whatever. But, you know, my dad was very old-fashioned. They divorced. She wound up going back to school, college, mm-hmm. got a degree, um, and uh, wound up getting a, a, a really good job. Moved our family out of the projects into a, an upper-middle-class black neighborhood. And I had to go to a different school. And so um, I just, you know, the new school was like, you know, I didn't know anybody there, right? Literally. I just, they, they line you up. They put you in the gymnasium. They line everybody up, and it was just a line of dudes, and I didn't know anybody. And I just thought, I don't know any of these dudes, and I, I don't even know if I like any of them. So I looked down the whole line, and then I saw this one dude that looked a little bit like me, and I thought, <laughs> I'll go stand next to him. So I stood next to him, and I said, hey, man, I'm a, my name is Andre. You know, he's like, oh, my name's Prince. I said, you know, so we started talking. I said, what do you do? He said, I do music. I said, oh, so do I. I said, what do you play? He said, I play piano. I said, oh, I play bass. You know, and so we should hook up. My dad has, you know, like a piano and, you know, a little, uh, um, I didn't have a bass at the time, so he said his dad has a little uh, four-string acoustic guitar kind of bass slash whatever. So we went over there, and that's, that's how we hooked up. Yeah. Wow. Everyone's bass story in Minnesota starts with just four strings. Right. <laughs> Brown Mark was saying that he ordered a... A base in the Sears catalog and broke two strings. The bottom two strings were broken, so that's he came from from base by default. Um, was the name Prince a usual thing in in the sixties? Like, you know, I you know it wasn't John or or Thomas or you know like mostly among probably small four legged animals. <laughs> but, um, but his dad's stage name was Prince Roger. No, but you didn't think that was unusual that that's your name, Prince? Like, you know, he wasn't always, relentlessly teased for having, you know. Well, I don't, I mean, you have to, well, you can't ask him, but right. um, I have no idea. But I know that in, in that community, in that neighborhood, we had Caesar, <laughs> you know, we had. Uh, so we, unusual we had, names were yeah, yeah, to start. Had, yeah, it was a lot of very sort of, you know, um, regal names and then, you know. So, at what point did you two start playing together to know that, okay, we gel and maybe we should do something? Right then, yeah, that was, that was, because when we went over to his dad's house and we jammed, you know, we were like, we hit it off. I mean, because it was, it was the first time I ever met anybody that had the same passion about music that I did. Before that, I, um, you know, I would tell, you know, I would tell anybody, you know, look, I, you know, I'm going to be, uh, I'm gonna be a superstar. I'm gonna be, you know, Jackson Five. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do that, and people would laugh at me. And when I would say it to him, he was like, was like "Yeah, let's do this." So anyway. So was there a, a a thought to make it happen in Minnesota, or did you to think that okay, well, we have to go elsewhere and let's go to Los Angeles, and there we'll make it as musicians? Like no, 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 no. Well, it wasn't that, you know, I mean, I think the, the reality is I don't think kids think like that because I mean, we were like 13, <laughs> 14 maybe. Um, you don't think, I don't think you think like that. I think you just put together a band because I think at the time 
that was what was going on. I mean, there was a lot of really cool bands. You know, like I said, my cousin was one of the, he was a drummer for one of the, the, the dopest bands in the, in the city. And he was unbelievable drummer. And then, you know, you had other things like the Elks and stuff like that that were all, those were big things for, you know, young kids who want to be musicians, so. But I think you just, you know, the attitude was that you got to start here first. You got to start, put, put a band together and you start, I mean, you know, Des knows this stuff. I'm sure you did the same thing. You got to put a band together and then you got to, you know, then you got to, you know, move from there. So Des, were you born in Minnesota? Like, what's your... I was born in St. Paul. Aha. Yeah. So was life different in St. Paul than it was in Minneapolis or was it... Really a Twin City. It's definitely a Twin Cities thing. You know, St. Paul was sort of the more provincial, you know, twin sister of, of Minneapolis. But, but less so then, you know what I mean? There was a lot more similarity, I think, between the cities then. Um, but my folks had moved up from, from the south. They were from Clarksville, Tennessee. My dad moved up to go to art school and then basically He chose Minnesota to... Yeah, yeah. Okay. His older brother was at the U of M. Um, and uh, was in his like his senior year or something. So he brought no no he was he was in his uh, doctorate that's what it was, and he brought my dad up because my dad wanted to come up here to go to art school. So he convinced my mom to marry him, brought her up, and so I, I was born and raised up here. Really? Yeah. So what's your musical angle? Your connection? Like what was your first moment in discovering music? And well, my so dad was a musician. He was a sax player, and he quit to raise a family. So he actually joined the Navy, was actually in the ship's band, played sax in the Navy, and got out and you know started working two, three jobs. So one of my earliest memories is hearing, waking up in the middle of the night hearing music. When my dad was working like sort of second shift post office, he would get off work. And um, I remember one night waking up, hearing music, and kind of creeping halfway down the stairs till I could see what was going on in the living room. And there's like four cats playing saxophone in the living room at, you know, two o'clock in the morning. Well, that's because my dad would get off work, you know, wide awake, work with some other guys that were also musicians. And it would be like, well, just come on over to my place and we'll jam. So they would jam like in the middle of the night when I was a little kid. So to me, music was just something that was just there. And that, that was what people did. He had a huge, huge record collection, you know, that whole thing. So, knowing your, your, your history and your, your vocabulary, mm -hmm. and knowing how much of a shredder you are and in, in, in the rock influence, mm -hmm. um, am I to assume that you chose that particular route to go straight rock to adapt into the environment that you were in, or like, did it just naturally speak to you? Like, what? It just spoke to me. It chose me. I mean, we, when I was, until I was in fourth grade, we lived in the inner city. Then my dad, it was really, he really felt it important to move us out into a better school system. So, um, but even while we were still, you know, in the hood, it was, it was guitar that spoke to me. I remember going through my dad's record collection and he had this King Curtis single. Wow. And, and I, I flipped it over, played the B-side, and it was this raucous, like, rock and roll thing. And I, I was, like, mesmerized. I mean, I would listen to it over and over again. So I just always felt like rock chose me. I didn't choose it. You know, it was it was in my DNA somehow, some way. What were the uh, the early bands that you joined before? I started a slew of bands. My first one, I was 14 years old. Um, 
and and I had to pay to get in my first gig. We played like the ninth grade dance, you know, junior high, and had to <laughs> you pay to get in to my first gig. <laughs> but you know, it was like all like Grand Funk Railroad and you know that whole thing. And the first several bands, because I, I I was in, I formed or was in like nine different bands before the audition at Dell's Tire Mart. You know, all those years later. So um, you know, it was always about power trios in the beginning. You know, playing a whole lot of like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and you know, anything with long guitar solos in it. Right. That's what it was about. So okay, well to, to hear this 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 tale of the two cities, I mean, how expansive did your vocabulary? And this is for Andre and and Des. I mean, how expansive did your vocabulary have to be uh, in order to get these sop hop gigs and and whatnot like? You know, would you say that you're, would you have to adapt to whatever environment you were in if you knew that there was a high school full, you know, of black kids, you would know what the, what the black stuff was. And then if you, I mean, was it integrated audiences it, it by that point? It definitely was in, in my background because we, we had to literally go from playing little tiny towns, you know, East Crevice, Iowa at the teen center you know, where we would go from playing... Well, you were traveling. Oh, yeah. I was okay. tra- I, my, my folks used to have to write me notes to get me out of school early, oh, off their high school. So I could go. <laughs> we, we found a dude that could drive, and we would go and we would play. So we would have to go from, like, playing, you know, an Emerson, Lake, and Palmer song to an average white band song to, you know, whatever. So it was definitely about that. But, again, I had grown up seeing that because in the Twin Cities at that time in the 60s, there were multiracial bands. There were bands that, that had, you know, blacks and whites and, and Hispanics and, and everybody. Some of the most popular bands in town were multiracial. And, you know, so in this market, it was just, it was just a different thing. Now, you had to play other people's music, but right. that's just the way it was. So was it as utopian for you? Andre as well, or was it just straight like? <laughs> <laughs> he was on the other side of the No, no, no. Uh, we, no, we played funk, R&B, and, and we played in the hood. We played at one of the clubs called the Bucket of Blood. <laughs> Wait, it was called and Bucket was like, of Blood? We literally, my, my brother, I mean, you know, because, like I said, we came from the other side of town. And so we were playing at, um, you know, clubs where, you know, people were getting shot and stabbed and, you know, my brother was there with his girls, and you know, it was just it was it was a different reality. You know, um, and then my mom, you know, would get a lot of our a lot of our gigs, and so you know, um, and then you know we played at barbecues, we played at backyards, you know, we played at you know anytime somebody was you know having a get together, you know sometimes there even be you know parties people have down their basement, and they'd want somebody to play, and we you know so we you know it was <laughs> it was an, it was another reality. Okay, so at the rate where, I, I kind of want to push it up a little bit, um, that you guys' paths cross, because I, I assume that in Prince's first in, incarnation of the band included both Des and Andre. Well, Andre is definitely the OG, because you guys started out in school together. Yeah, right, but I mean, at the rate where, when he got a deal, like, how big of a deal was that once it reached the local Minneapolis circuit, like, ah, one of us is going to make it, or that, that's, like, was it a big deal, or was it just like, eh, okay. Yeah, it was a big deal. <laughs> Absolutely, it was a big deal. I mean, it was like, um, 
this is what we, you know, what we had worked for and built up to. I mean, was it was it awkward, though? I mean, because I don't know if I'm pretty sure that with anyone it's like okay if we get there first then I'll pull you with me and that sort of thing but this is clearly like okay one of you is going to be the 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 focus and the center of it as opposed to it being a group situation you know it's interesting I I I I heard a um, I guess there was a documentary with Chris Moon okay because our band you know we had won a battle of the bands and one of the prizes was um, free recording studio time um, and I think maybe $75 or something like that. But um, so that's, that's really kind of how it happened. <laughs> you know, I know that it's, you know, there's all, all sorts of different stories and everybody's got the myths and all that. But the reality is that's what happened. And Chris Moon, you know, um, heard us playing. He was trying to figure out how he could get, in, you know, get involved with this, this band. Because at the time, we were hot. We paid the dues and worked our way up. And, Everybody was, you know, really talking about us. I mean, at the time, it was as a band, right. um, and it wasn't like, oh, just this guy or oh, just that guy or what, oh, whatever. Um, but because um, he came in, and if you watch the documentary, he says, you know, I went up to, you know, because he came up to me and he asked me, and I said, you need to talk to my manager. And then he went to Prince. He said, because he said he looked like he'd be the, you know, easiest guy to sort of deal to talk with. Talk to, right? Yeah. I would like to know, at what point do you? really push the envelope because you guys weren't just an average group. I mean, your your television debut caused many, many uh, uh <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean I, I remember seeing I, I think it was was Midnight Special before or after American Bandstand. They were real close together. They were real close together. They were around the same yeah. Tony and Perry. Well, I, I remember... That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a whole other story. That's a whole other story. I remember Midnight Special and just the utter tone and disgust my dad had about it, you know. And all he took away from it was, no, no boy should be wearing no diaper on no, no stage. Like, <laughs> you guys just look like nothing ever on like who's I mean how are you guys like with a straight face like okay we're just gonna do things that we've never done before I mean how does that even come to fruition like who you know I think a lot of what that that sort of natural chemistry between you and Prince when you just first saw each other in school that day I mean, I think that actually kind of played itself out in the band a lot. Absolutely. Where it wasn't like, you know, we... we like, so you guys you know, even stood out even in the local localization of... of yeah, no, I mean, we were, you know, it's... Like, it was, who was your closest competition band-wise? And nobody. Who's a distant second? No, 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 I just meant in terms of when you... I'm talking about in terms of Grand Central. Back what other day. band would oh, you... Okay, now I know what you mean. Um, uh, Sonny Thompson, their band, they had the most unbelievable band in the city at the time, bar none. I mean, like, I mean, I would go see them. I mean, I, I was, you know, I was extremely <laughs> cocky. You know, I was like, I, you know, my attitude about being a musician, because I really felt like if you really do what you're supposed to do, practice and play and all that kind of stuff, 
then you know you pay the cost to be the boss. So I would talk a lot of trash, and just, you know, it was basically <laughs> in my nature at the time. You know, um, you know, Prince was a little more laid back, but I was probably the opposite of that. So I was always talking trash. But the one band that I didn't talk, you know, I went. I remember going to one of their gigs, you know, thinking about. I went there specifically to talk trash, so we could. That's how I would get gigs. <laughs> you know, I went there specifically, you know, to talk talk trash. And I went there, and I was like, because Sonny was killing it, and the drummer, and then Randy Barber, but the drummer was Joe Lewis, is still a friend of mine. I mean, Joe Lewis is just. I mean, he was the coolest drummer ever because he would do all of the stuff that you know. You know, all the funky stuff, all the funky licks, but he just always had this rock. Mm -hmm. And he had this fro, and he just looked mm -hmm. like, I mean, it was the 70s, and it was just, he was the epitome of a cool drummer. And so I was just blown. I'm, that just, that, and I went back and said, we got to up our game, you know. And so, and that wasn't even a you know, distant thing. That was like a distant way beyond our whole thing. And that's when I was like, we got to up our game. So anyway. Um, there's one particular project I would like to talk about that, never really came to light unless you're deep in the, the bootleg circle, and that's the Rebels. Um, what was the, was the Rebels just like a weekend idea, like, hey, let's just, for starters, you guys record at the speed of sound, and, you know, the, the entire project can be done within a week, so to, to even have that much output in, in such a little time, like, what was the, the beginnings of the Rebels? or the idea of it? Or was that just a folklore that's only in Minnesota fan music mind? No, like, it's, it's real, project, but yeah. I, can, I can tell you what the real. Give me the real, I know. <laughs> I mean, there's like, you know, I mean. I, I mean, know the folklore, but what was the, what was well, the basis? The, the real deal is, is he had a band of very talented musicians, you mm -hmm. know? And, you know, we had done some stuff, you know, and we probably could have gone off and done other things. So rather than have us scramble out into different areas and go do solo things here and our own thing there, you know, it might be a good idea to give them something to occupy themselves. <laughs> so so that, this is keep you from moonlighting. It, it, there you it's go. Kind of like, it's kind of like the same theory that some parents use. Well, we'd rather have you have the party here. We'll get the alcohol and make sure that you don't leave the house. You know what I'm saying? Control chaos. But it was still fun. I mean, you know, we had. I mean, we had so much fun. That was that was. You know, I got to know Dez a whole lot better. And Dez. So why guys, didn't it come know, out? Dez is one of the funniest dudes on the planet Earth. He kept me in stitch, especially that project. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. What? Why didn't it come out? It was a decision that was never really clearly articulated to us, you know what I mean? Which happened from time to time, subsequently. Because <laughs> those songs were complete. There's at least five or six that Oh yeah, it, could have the, easily been on the Dirty Mind record. Yeah, the, the, it was a record. And it had the different personalities of the different members of the band, because everybody wrote stuff and everybody brought things to the table. And that was his, his vision, was that everybody contribute, you know? So I... Personally, maybe you know something I don't, but I don't know what happened to yeah. it. Who all was in this band? Who exactly were the members? Uh, it was the band. Yeah, yeah. Andre oh, and I, Gail yeah. Chapman was the keyboard player at the time. And, uh, so it was the same band, but I guess Prince would have lessened his role and made it less about him and more about a band unit. Yeah. At least that was the idea, I assume. Yeah, yeah. and, and, and I, I think what happened, um, because the record company, when they got it, 
they want to thrill you or kill you mm -hmm. to be the single. Yeah. And that probably might have been a, you know, because the whole life, the whole idea was to get the band and occupy them until we did the next tour and he finished, you know, his next record. To put out a single with one of the band members, mm -hmm. you know, their song as the lead single, it could maybe be successful, which would change sort of, you know, you could lose a certain amount of control, you know, possibly. But, you know, I think the thing is, is that bottom line is I think everybody at the time were, were very dedicated to his thing, to his project. I know I was. Right. To, um, so it was like, I mean, and I only found that out through, obviously, through the management because, you know, the management was constantly talking to me because, you know, you know, Prince wasn't a big talker. I know it has to be weird to mix friendship with business and it's like, at one point, you guys are best friends, but then like clearly someone has to be the 49, 51% of it. Oh, and that could make it awkward. Um, probably the most notable thing, at least for both of you, is that um, both of you stepped away from the camp and left camp right at the moment when the, I, I, I guess the, 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 the climax or the explosion, at least for what you guys have been relentlessly doing all these endless hours of rehearsal for. And, you know, we, we've already discussed uh, the Rolling Stones situation, uh, <laughs> what's happened in L.A. Uh, in uh, another segment. Um, but at what point, I mean, I'm not saying for regrets or anything like that, but I mean, how hard was the decision, at least for both of you, to step away at the times when you both did uh, to, to pursue your own career and your own interest? I mean, for me, it really wasn't hard at all because the, the day that I auditioned at Dell's Tire Mart, the infamous 15-minute audition, Prince and I went out in the parking lot. He asked me some, some very deep, very career-minded questions for a young man of that age mm -hmm. and basically said, you know, he posed it to me this way. Would you be willing to come help me do what I do? And then when the time comes, you know, you help me make this thing work, then I'll help you do what you do. So we had a deal from the beginning that at some point I was going to go back to being a front man, to, to being a band leader guy. So he came to me after 1999 and said, look, here's the deal. This film, I need a solid three-year commitment. Do the film. So you wanted to stay to 87. Yeah. Yikes. And at that point in time, I just couldn't get my mind around three more years. So the other option was management will take you on right now. and We'll get you a record deal. You can go do your thing. It just, for me, it really, really felt like I need to do this now. So it was, it was not hard at all. And I was back out on the road within, you know, four months. I was out solo shows first, then on the Rebel Yell Tour with Billy Idol, the special guest out there. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Uh, Dre, I guess it should also be noted, I mean, you've done a lot of work uh, since your exit. Probably the, the, the most notable is uh, your production for Jody Watley's uh, first, three, first three albums. What was that transition like? And, I mean, what was the feeling to, I mean, really, really, truly score? I mean, because this wasn't just like, you know, throw it on the wall and see if this, you know, type of music. I mean, this was really impactful. I mean, it was Grammy 
nominated, well, it won, you know. Yeah. So what was that just process like? Well, I'd have to agree with that as it was easy. <laughs> easy to leave that situation, not just because it's like, you know, my whole thing was, you know, three albums, you know, but, you know that should give you enough time for your thing to, to jump off. And, you know, then, then I wanted, because I never thought about being anybody's band. So, um, so, and then I did the solo stuff and I did space music and the record company didn't get it and they didn't promote it. So I went and said, if you guys aren't gonna promote it, why don't you just drop me? They wouldn't drop me. They heard Kelly's so. eyes and didn't feel like, yo, <laughs> This yeah. is the shiznit. Yeah. Like they And so I mean, but that's that was it. And so they, they wouldn't let me off the label, so I quit recording. Um, and so I thought, well, I gotta make some money. And I met Jody when I was doing um, the the video for Dance Electric. Um, and you know, we wound up hanging out and I was like, You are really, really talented. You should you know, and she had some some stuff that she was working on. Um, and I I was like, I'd love to, you know, shoot you some tracks, and I shot her, I think, five tracks, and she wrote lyrics to them, and I guess the rest is history, and we started working together. That's amazing. I wish I had more time because I have so much more I want to ask, but I want to thank you, uh, Des and Andre, for being on the show, and we'll be back with Susanna Melvoin. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Wow, what can I say about our next guest? One of my favorite, favorite people ever. Um, can't say enough about Susanna Melvoin. Uh, twin sister, 
of Wendy Melvoin and, and member of the family, uh, Seminole group whose 1985 record like had tremendous influence on me and, and not to mention just her presence alone has inspired so much life-changing material. Uh, welcome, Susanna Melvoin, to Quest Love Supreme. Yeah. Susanna's pajamas. Yes. <laughs> Susanna, how are you? I'm good. I have to know, um, growing up uh, in such a musical family mm -hmm. in, in California, and first of all, do you play any instruments? Because I'm, I'm curious about siblings who, uh, where one particular sibling picks up an instrument and the other doesn't. I know that Alan Leeds, his brother, Eric is a monster saxophonist, but doesn't necessarily, he doesn't play instruments himself. Like, do, are you, do you play any instruments or? Well, I, like many singers, I can play the guitar, I can play piano, but that's not the, that's not what I do. Okay. Know? So, yeah, no, I, I was, well, while Wendy was playing yeah, guitar lessons, I was a ballet dancer. And then we were both, session singers as kids because of my dad. So, I mean, in, did you have uh, any desires to become a singer yourself or you, were you just, you just happened to have a good singing voice and that was that and, you know. I, there, I, I never thought of anything else, ever. I had, um, I was terrible in school. I was great in art and I was horrible in school. And I was thankful that I was like, I don't need to go to school anyway because I'm I have this other thing I want to do, and that's all I know how to do. That's my that's what I do. That's what I was born into. Wendy and I and Eve and Lisa, all of our families grew up together. Our parents were session players and they were the wrecking crew, and we just we were just in music all the time. We went to schools where we, you know, you had to play recorder in nursery school and you had to play violin in second grade and you were, we were, <laughs> Wendy and I were in all state choruses and it's just, you know, we just, that's what we did. And, um, but there was a time when... Your sister mentioned something when she talked about her first encounter with Prince uh -huh. and she said it so, as a matter of fact, that it didn't even hit me to question it. She said, we were 13 years old inside of a nightclub. And I'm like, wait, what was the carding policy? Of or y'all that developed physically? Or the, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> kind of both. It was, it, you know. This I th before those times where, you know. I don't know how we got away with it, but Dad, we're going out tonight. How old are you? 13? Yeah, so-and-so's picking us up. We're going to go to the Starwood. And, uh, oh, you told him the truth. Right, straight wow. up. Oh, straight up. I'm like, we're going yeah. to the library. No, <laughs> right, right. no, 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 no. Dude, I went to church to so sneak to see the Thanksgiving Purple Rain show that I got on punishment for. Oh, this was crazy. Oh. Wendy and I would go at 13-year-old girls, and we would we were the only, I, I don't know what, how it happened, but Wendy and I were the only girls at 13 who were not going out to do dope, or uh, we were going out to dance. That's all Wendy and I wanted to do. We were kids that we were so heavy into disco. We were just such dancers. We were just we were doing the line. We were doing the hustle. We were doing everything. We were doing all this new stuff. We went to school with uh, we went to this crazy little art school in the Jackson Five 
had gone to this school. Michael had graduated already, but Randy was in a grade or grade or two ahead of us. And we'd sit in the parking lot and we'd do line dances together and do all the, you know, just crazy. It was all about us dancing and are you going to go to Xenon's tonight? Are you going to go to blah, blah, blah? We're going to the, we're going to Starwood on Saturday. You Trust know? is an amazing thing when it works out perfectly. Well, when you've got kids that come home and they're not, you know, effed up and they've just been dancing all night, there's something, that, you know, and if your kids are sort of straight up, I guess we were, you know, or my, my father was a knucklehead. But, you know, so did you meet Prince at the same time that Wendy met him or did you come in later? When did you realize, like, oh, God, there's another one of you? I was working when I got out of high school, and um, this was right before I got the gig with Quincy. I was working for David Geffen. Mm. Got out of high school. I got a gig answering the phones at Geffen Records. The David Geffen Company, and after a while, I'd be like, have a cup of coffee company, have a cup of coffee company, David Geffen Company, have a cup of coffee company. It was just running, running, running. Anyway, Christmas party, 1980-whatever. I'm 17 years old. Christmas party for Warner Brothers. And I already know Lisa's got the gig already. Um, like, yay, my sister's got the gig. Yeah. Wendy and I had been listening to those records. We'd be dancing on, at the Starwood to, you know, I want to be your lover and all of that. We're like, who is this woman? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I, you know, I. I get this silly outfit. Um, it's my first time. Like you're gonna go to a really big corporate party, mm-hmm. and I just was like, "Oh God, I can't believe I'm gonna do this." I had my hair permed, and it looked like a poodle, and it would just like <laughs> the whole thing would move at once with the wind, and I it was a st- silly little black thing. It just felt ridiculous, and I walk in, and there's Prince and Vanity wow. standing at the wall, the two of them together, me, my little old self. Hi. Wendy's twin sister, Susanna. Um, I just wanted to meet you and say hi, and you know, no, no clue that like that, that, some of this guy's best songs would be written about you. And <laughs> and he 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 gave me that sweet little smile, and he said, "Wendy's your sister, right?" And I said, "Mm-hmm." And he said, "Lisa's my sister too." And he was like, "Oh." Mm-hmm. And then Vanity leans down, she grabs my face, and she goes. Oh, you're so cute with a fat cheeks. <laughs> oh, Shade. And I was like, mm, great. Okay, bye. <laughs> Aren't you cute? Aren't you cute? Cut to Purple Rain rehearsals. She's out the door. Walking out the door the last day of her gig. She's out. It's like, we got to find another lead. And here comes Susanna walking in to rehearsal. And uh, she came right up to me. You're going to have the best time ever here. Wow. Or she. Wow. And I literally, I, 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 I was like, I kind of gave her like, why do you keep talking to me like this? And I could see him. And he looked over and he was like, he shook his head. He went, mm-mm, like that. Really? And then it's funny because Des had his birthday party, he and shortly, at like within that weekend, it was in August, and I went to his birthday party, and um, <laughs> I'm sitting on the couch, and in comes Prince. He comes walking in. He jumps on the couch, sits next to me, and he goes, "Did you dream of me last night?" <laughs> and I said, 
just so happens I did. And I had. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, there's other stories. But that's when it all started. The flirt game was crazy. That's when it all started. I see. And then um, Prince had heard my demo. So we used to have, we used to go to the airport and pick him up in Lisa's car. And he'd come stay with us at our little, the three of us lived in this teeny little house on Melrose. And so we would go pick him up in Betty Flounder. That was Lisa's car. And so it would be Wendy and Lisa, and we'd have, yeah, Betty Flounder. And no, Betty was around through all of Purple Rain, and even, you remember Betty Flounder. The car was like an old Buick, 56, 57 Buick, salmon-colored. So we'd all go to pick up Prince with, on, with Betty Flounder. He called her Betty. We were all, like, in Betty Flounder. And he'd come and stay with us. Wait, I got two questions. Huh? I got two questions. And I don't know if it's the fact that I come from in the, the era of music that was just so overdone with budgets and whatnot. But I would think during this time period, like like you guys were picking each other up from the airport. Oh, uh, yeah. First yeah. of all, Prince was taking a plane, because in my head, I'm like, oh. He took yeah. a plane by himself. We'd go pick him up at the airport, and he'd come stay with us, and my cats would jump all over him, and he'd be on the couch, and he'd be like, I mean, would he get least, your cats. Would he at least wear a baseball cat or no. something to, what year was no. this? Like, when, what? 80 for Four? Wow. Three? So is this post-purple post rain? So, okay, pre- so at least in our heads, because I'm thinking, like, this guy cannot step out the door without getting mobbed. Oh. Now, I know that some of that stuff is, you know, what we just saw growing up as kids. No. But he could take the plane and yeah. maybe one or two people yeah. be like, oh, there's Prince. and Yeah, yeah, particularly with the three of us. And I'll pick you up from the airport. We'll be like, there. I can yeah, what time that. are you going like, to be here? And we'd be there and pick him up. And there's no person with a sign like Prince Nelson. Like, <laughs> not during this time, no. But I imagine no. his flying outfit is different from his. Perf- you know what I mean? Like his whole look is different. Well, his whole plane. look was always different. But he was a. This is a beautiful kid. You know, he was a beautiful kid. I mean, and he would, you know, just wear a, a you know, a vintage old, you know, grandpa coat, mm. and he'd look so beautiful in it. And he'd wear his, you know, his jeans and he'd wear a you know whatever top I mean and that's he'd just come out like that I mean there was no it wasn't like who's that weirdo it was just like who's that cutie pie and he'd be so confident and he'd be so happy to be coming and hanging and that was it I just can't imagine him flying commercial or <laughs> him sitting All in the a, time. a pinto or that sort of thing and oh so. no you, you not many people know how important this particular period of time was for him and for us because this was like this we became it's so interesting cuz talking about it now but we became like pals yeah, the but four on a really are. deep like you know yeah. not many people know that like he's sleeping on the couch and our cats are running and jumping on him and he's saying can somebody get the cats off me <laughs> <laughs> Don't imagine Prince sleeping on a couch in a house full of women. I'm gonna say that right from the jump. No, no, you don't. But then it's okay. a, that's when it all started. I'm just saying. No. No, but I'll tell you a really funny story. So one of the nights he's there, um, we lived in this itty bitty place, and it didn't have a bathroom door. It had one of those sort of saloon doors. It was horrifying, and it was in my bedroom. 
And so it was like, if anyone needed to do their business, it was like, okay, everybody's going to get out of the house now, right? Or nobody's going to be around. <laughs> it's just like, you hear everything. Or make a smoothie. You could just, just yeah, just hear anything. It's just like, just horrifying. So <clears throat> I'm in that room, and <laughs> uh, Lisa, what, when, what am I supposed to, you know, if I need to, what? You know, if I need to. She's like, well, tell, just tell Susan to leave the room. So... Nothing went further than that, but he did come into my room, and he sat on my bed, and I was on one side of my bed, and I had this really crappy mattress, and it had a huge, huge, deep dent in it, and he, he went, you sleep in this thing? And he said, do you have a job? And I was like, and he's like, can't you get yourself a new mattress? How do you sleep in that? And I was like... I sleep on that side. I don't sleep in the hole. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, uh, I came home the next day from working for Geffen Records, Geff, David Geffen, and there was a huge mattress at my door. So it was like so. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead yeah. of roses, here's your mattress. mattress. Yeah. 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 Send you a circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're a good lady, because I would have been like, is that for me or for us? Us. Oh, no. <laughs> naive. But that's, that's so funny you should say that. I mean, it just never occurred to me at that point that, like, he was actually courting me in any way. I just, you know, it was just like, this is a really sweet gesture, and that's I needed a bed. I but know. he heard that demo. He heard that demo in that house, This partic- one of these particular things, and he said... Uh, well, when he said, can we play him the demo? And I said, no, don't play him anything. God, don't, don't play him anything. I was so flipped out because I loved everything he'd done. Mm-hmm. And I was working with Quincy. I was doing, like, you know, session work and, you know, right. just it wasn't that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, I want to hear it. And so I said, okay, I'm leaving the house. So I left the house, came back, and he came right up to me and he said, um, you want to come and do what we're doing? He goes, wouldn't you rather do that? And I said, yes. And, yeah, uh, so. and he said, well, I think, I think you'd have a really good time. I see. Wait, okay, before I let you go, I just have to ask one oh, last oh, question. Oh, God, what a bummer that I'm just talking about this. No, 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 I know, because there's so much more. But I'd, I would like to discuss, yeah. I know that he would often communicate with cassettes. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, blows my mind. I mean, if I'm in the studio making a song, I'm thinking like, okay, how can this be a hit? How can like I'm not just gonna make like a song aimed at one person, like, <laughs> and that's it. Instead of us talking out a problem or whatever, like, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many cassettes have you received of like just stuff for like, here, this for you, like, like, of just custom made songs? Because that to me is an amazing art too. Um, none. <laughs> wow. Even Lisa got us. I mean. The tapes that I would get, the tapes that I would get were on the floor of my car. He wouldn't hand them to me. Mm-hmm. They'd be dispersed at the bottom of the car. And so it'd be like, ooh. Oh, like these are for you? Or well, he just never put them in your hand? They're mine now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't mean like songs no. just made that he just left there. I'd Specifically for me? 
Well, I know that he made uh, Lisa's song, Strange Ways of Saying I Love You. Like, they had an argument, whatever, and he didn't know how to say sorry. No, anything, anything that we did, anything, he would specifically say, let's go in the studio. You and me. We're wow. going in. Oh, so you were there. Just, the, we're, go, we're going in. You and I, we're going in, and then you're going to hang here until you're, I'm ready to have you come and sing your vocal, and this is what we're doing, and this is what I'm thinking about, and then that would be it. And then we'd listen to everything together in the car. And that would go on for days and days. And then we'd go in and do more overdubs or, you know, it'd just be like that. (laughs) But I was, it was never, it wasn't, it wasn't that much, it wasn't that disconnected. Like, here's your tape. It was like, we, let's go. We're doing this. Yeah, we're doing, not that I'd even collaborate, but it was like, there, you know, I need you by my side because I'm going to have you do this, but you're going to be with me from the get go. Now, I'm not going to call you at some point and you're right. going to come in. No, you're going to be with me. Before we go, uh-huh. I, I got to ask her the Starfish and Coffee story. Okay. All right. For our listeners, uh, could you please, please, please uh, give us the, the genesis of the Starfish and Coffee story? During the many, many car rides um, together, he, he would have, you know, occasionally ask me. Um, Wait, um, before you say that, you say huh. car rides. We, or you just drive around the city listening to music? We lived in the car. Lived in the car. We would drive everywhere for any reason, all the time, from vanilla milkshakes to going to Minnehaha Falls and drinking that milkshake, then getting back in the car, listening to the music, listening to our music, and talking. Going to the lake, sitting at the lake, going back in the car, listening to more music. So it talking, wasn't weird talking, to talking. listen to his own music? No, because he wasn't listening to it like, listen how badass I am, although I'm sure he was doing that. It was work. You know, like, we're listening to it, does it sound right? What's it sound like in the car when we put something else on? And there were other, there were times when we would listen to other records, you know, and it was the kind of records that he'd never heard before that, you you know, I had introduced him to or Wendy and Lisa had introduced him to. And so we would listen to those records and, you know, sonically, you know, the audio, the, the, became audio files, like how does it sound and what was going on with those records. So, but these, this, there were many of those rides and, you know, we would talk about our histories and our secrets and, you know, what was it like here and what'd you do with that and I'm going to take you over to where I grew up and what was it for you guys. And I would tell him about this one story about this girl, Cynthia Rose, who Wendy and I were in school with from nursery school up into sixth grade. And back in this particular time, you know, nobody knew what autism was, but she was an incredible, and just the most extraordinary girl. And he would ask me on occasion, like, tell me about Cynthia, tell me about this, this story. And um, so we would tell him, I'd tell him, and we'd laugh because I would get to the part where she would say, you know, she'd rock back and forth. And she was like, what, what'd you have for breakfast this morning, Cynthia? She was like, I had starfish and pee-pee. <laughs> yeah, starfish baby, and you know what my favorite number is? It's twenty. And she, I mean, this was on for years, and she, and I loved her. I thought she was the sweetest kook ever. And you know, I just like that she was. It was just anyway. Um, so this one particular day in I what I want to say some in the fall of '85. We were at the house, and we were in the kitchen, and he came upstairs from the studio. He said, can you, you tell me the whole story of Cynthia again? Can you tell me the whole thing with Cynthia Rose? And he goes, can you write it down? And I was like, sure. And so in detail, I'm writing him about, you know, 
who the class was. There was Kevin and Lucy and, you know, Wendy and myself and there were many other kids. And there's Cynthia and there's my teacher, Miss Kathleen, and doing the, the whole day, what it was like to be with her, to watch her do her. And um, he was like, okay. And then I, I wrote down, you know, and then she would say a starfish and breakfast. <laughs> and then he, was, he took it and he was like, <clears throat> okay. He runs downstairs in the studio, comes back up, and he says, um, starfish and peepees, that's got to go. He goes, Prince told he, you that. He goes, do you mind if it's coffee? He, I don't think, he, goes, he goes, do you mind if it's coffee? Because I don't think I can sing peepee. <laughs> I was like, it's all good. Go ahead. You do what you got to do. Which, and it was so sweet. It was like, okay, yeah, I, of course you're not going to sing peepee. <laughs> um, so he goes downstairs in the studio, and like six hours later, seven hours later, I mean, it's like early in the morning, and he comes up and he says, come down. And uh, actually, it was Susan who came to get me, and Susan Rogers, and brought me back downstairs. And he was standing at the console, exhausted, and sweet little smile on his face, and he goes, here it is. And he just pressed play, and Starfish and Coffee was there. Wow. And yeah. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, I have so much more, but I got to wrap it up. Another uh, time. Yes. There's plenty more. Uh, Susanna Melvoin, uh, thank you so much. I have to say, uh, that was an edumacation. We learned a lot about Minnesota and, and, and what it had to offer. And yeah, That was like a PhD. That was a doctorate course in yeah. all things Prince, Minnesota. Like, I don't think we needed was Kirby Puckett. And <laughs> <laughs> all Minnesota. <laughs> Kirby, Kirby. <laughs> Kirby's dead, actually. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Well, he is dead. Kirby's dead. <laughs> so, what did you learn about you? I uh, learned that I'm a lazy bastard. I thought I was lazy um, just being your friend for the last few years, but now that I really <laughs> learned about uh, Prince and his work ethic, I need to get my shit together. Uh, <laughs> true. It was a lot of stuff, but I'm, at the end of the day, it's about me, so I'm like, yeah, get my shit together. I'm Pay Bill. Why is everybody from Minnesota in a fucking musical family? Every one of them was like, my dad played the bass, yeah. my mom did yeah. this. And I was just like, my, my parents are doctors. Like, I have this. this is like, <laughs> I thought to myself, I was wondering, like, what it would be like to grow up in it, because you did grow up in a musical family and, like, what that's like and how that, because, like, music wasn't in my house. I didn't live in that world. Like, I had to go find it myself. It wasn't on me. Like, I didn't learn it at church. I didn't do anything. I, but anyway, I don't know. It just, I, just, I just think that's. Music. The way they were presenting it was like music was like an option. In my case, like, my, I, I don't know if my, my mom was probably Jedi mind tricking me into music to keep me off the streets, really to keep me from getting my ass whooped by the neighborhood kids. <laughs> <laughs> so. But like Wendy and Susanna growing up in like the, the, the Wrecking Crew house, like they, it was, that wasn't an option. Yeah, was, it just felt it like options. Well, I'm amazed that they told the truth. Like yeah. we're going nightclub. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, yeah. that was. And the fact you had parents that would be cool enough to be, you know, I mean, I worked in the nightclub, but I mean, you know, my parents, like they put me in the nightclub to keep an eye on me, right. to keep me from wanting to go to the nightclub, which, you know, is... It didn't work. Another <laughs> 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 level of rich hit me, though. That's what I felt. I was like, wow, yeah. that's like... Must be nice. Yeah, I didn't want to say, and I was like, wow. Okay. Hashtag must be nice. Uh, is there anything that we didn't cover, Bill? I mean, 
you and I are probably the biggest Prince fans that we know. Uh, like, did we miss something? There, there was one thing I really wanted to talk to um, Matt and Bobby about, and that was the, the bullhorn incident on the plane when. Uh, oh, that led to the. <laughs> when when they all got taken 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 to jail. This. So much that I wanted to ask about, but we just didn't have enough time. We need to do like four-hour episodes. I'm really actually. I mean, we had like 42 different guests. There was a lot of people in here today. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, Susanna, I'm proud we pulled this shit off. The stars. Yeah, can we get ourselves? I mean, Susanna and a bit to our supreme leader. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's not very Jim Jones. The, I know that's sarcasm. <laughs> yeah, give props to the Fuhrer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just think that at least with Susanna alone, like you know, there's a lot that I wanted to go into, but you know, I felt it was too soon. But like a lot, like the beautiful ones, like all those songs were about her. But did it feel ill to you yet that, you know, even when Wendy was here and I think that a couple of other band members, the way that they feel about you and what you've done for that was, them? Yeah, that was really That well. was like I, ill. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I just, it's, again, like, okay, so I had a, were any of you in the car with, no, it was, I was in the car with, with Maya and Gretchen from Princess last night and this weird Prince fan stopped the car and, like, actually said, you know, he starts the sentence with, I have $100,000 and I want to give it to you just so I can tell you my life story. And what? Exactly. <laughs> I said it verbatim. Yes, I know Steve's like, I mean, are you over exaggerated? <laughs> well, it's probably like 80 grand or something. <laughs> <laughs> Steve's like, why did you take 100 grand? No, and I, it just hit me like, yo, Prince has. The weirdest, even watching that audience, uh, that we, when we went to see the uh, Revolution show, he has the weirdest looking audience. I might, just might, have been arm's length with my audience as well if that were my fan base. I'm not saying, like, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> yeah, not the onesie no, with I gotta say, it's the onesie guy. The onesie. Yeah, with, with the hoodie, with the There's a guy with the onesie with, like, all these images we of all, all over his body. No, it, it, it just. I know that Prince fans can seem weird, and I know that Prince also felt a certain way about his male fans. I mean, any any well, male fans in music. general, though, because like he had the whole thing about the word fan, uh, fan how he hated the word because it was short for fanatic. Yeah, it's it just you know how like the Tricks Rabbit always had to conceal his excitement for Tricks without you know, and then he get busted by the kids and. Hey guys, it's really me. <laughs> like I don't ever want to be that guy. Like, okay, I gained your trust. Let me not let you know. Like the only indication that they really have gotten that it's like, oh, Amir, his level of fandom might be, you know, more than the average person was just like the demos I started pulling up. <laughs> you think that's it? In their press. Well, I mean, I've. I've I've learned that you gotta be cool in those situations. I know for me, like fans be thinking, like, oh man, if I mention that Japanese B side you have, then you'll know. We're like organics, 
Yeah, that ain't the way. Yeah, yeah that's oh, what's, I don't what's even the way? No what's no the way, y'all? This is, this is <laughs> like in order to, uh, like, <laughs> in order to like to the way to gain the yeah. trust. I think it's I like. Think it's wait, 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 wait! Before oh. you answer, are you sure you want to give this this away before oh. everybody starts trying to? do No, it? no, even no. Trust me, even if I gave it away, people will still fuck it. Okay, they'll still they'll still fuck it. I think for me, and I mean for for me, maybe different. I think there's a a fine line. You know what I'm saying? Um, for, for me is if I meet quote unquote a fan, um, the last thing I want to talk about is music. And I think this is just something for, you know, whatever person you're meeting in that field, you know what I'm saying? If it's, uh, you know, if they're actors, uh, sports people, whatever, that person has been talking about what they do all day, every day. You know what I'm saying? If I'm Michael Jordan, you know what I mean? I don't want to talk about basketball you know Jordan. what i'm saying right. yeah, but, but, uh, okay well from Kirby Kirby. Kirby. i don't want to talk about well, you know he's he dead yeah he ain't talking he ain't saying shit but other than that you know what i mean I, I think you know there that being a uh an artist or being a famous person let's let's be clear as we about fame you know what i'm saying i think like my theory on fame is just that it's, it's kind of like jail, right? You know what I mean? It's like whatever year, like how, you know, people say whatever year you go to jail in, whatever age you are, that's the age you stay. You don't really develop past that point. You know what I mean? I, never, I think fame is a lot. I never heard that. Oh, no. Nah, but me and Bill looked at each other like, <laughs> wow, <laughs> such wisdom. You strike again, find that. Nah, but so it's like, I think fame is the same way. I think whatever year, however age you are, that when you pop, like when you just become the man or the woman, whatever, that's kind of, you kind of live in a state of arrested development. So to me, the thing that is most uh, endearing is when you meet people and they just talk to you just like regular fucking people. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't Politics. want to. Like, yeah. oh, Fonte, you see that poster? Yeah, update? or whatever. Like, yo, you see that shit on Instagram? Right, right. Did you see the, the twerking chick? Like, <laughs> we can just talk about just regular shit. You know what I mean? But and it's I, weird. That's a hard middle to do because. I have people in my life that do the opposite. Like, Amir, I'm gonna let you know you ain't shit just to let you know uh, I ain't yeah, one of them yeah. people. Gotcha, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And then they gotta go too. <laughs> what are those people <laughs> pointing out their door right now? <laughs> the people that try to just take it too far, like right? just to be. Mm -hmm. Well, somebody gotta be your life to keep you humble. You already think. Yeah, but that's, that's being super obvious that. Right. It's an issue, but you're doing the op. Like, I have. Probably this room is. is, is as, as normal, normal as, as it is. Yeah, I mean, that's why I, I'm not saying I gathered you here like a master plan, like. But <laughs> <laughs> you did. It's all right. Please get your Kool Aid on the way out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Amir strikes again. Yeah, Jim Jones. Put on your Nike Cortez. Steve, what did you learn? Too soon, man. Were they all wearing purple too? Oh. I think they were. I think they were. <laughs> some hell bop shit. Okay. Yeah. Right. Wait, did they take that Nike off the off the marketplace no. because of? Not a question. I think they might have went up in sales actually. <laughs> <laughs> Death causes everything else to spike. You know? Well, we we owe a thank you to uh, Sugar Steve. You were a little yes. silent this episode. Oh yeah. You made pulling this together, man. Shout out to Henley Audio of Minneapolis. Yes, 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 thank you. Andrew Henley, great job, great job. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Because I'll be honest, I thought we were all just going to have to turn on our iPhones. <laughs> that was my first plan when you said this. Yeah. I said, everybody bring an iPhone. Um, I thought it was interesting. Um, everybody uh, who we interviewed, they, you were sort of pressing them on 
when Prince would make them, you know, stand there and loop some music for an hour mm -hmm. or two hours, whatever, while he practices dancing. Nobody seemed to resent any of that. Everybody saw yeah. that there was a purpose behind it, and they kind of took pride in it. Like, if you told me, I'm going to play drums for four hours, you just sit there and watch me or whatever. <laughs> I'd be like, you're fucking crazy. <laughs> but, um, you know, everybody seemed to, to see the, the method to his madness, you know? Yeah. yeah. So that was pretty cool. Wow. <laughs> ご視聴ありがとうございました<笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑><笑> And uh, 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Pacific. 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 Yes. Pacific Standard Time. <laughs> this is uh, Questlove signing off. Questlove Supreme. Thank you very much. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.